0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show, Ed Latimore, professional boxer, physicist, chess player, social media guru, and influencer. This guy has such a great, well-balanced life about how he looks at things, how he learns things, how he conquers his comfort zone, whether he's being hit in the face or doing differential equations or helping people with their social media. It was such a a great pleasure to talk to him. We had so many interesting stories. And even towards the end, we got into what I'll call the power of annoyance, how being annoying could become useful in various situations. But along the way, we've talked about so many things that I'm interested in. So I know you'll enjoy this. Give it up for Ed Lattimore. And here's the podcast.
1: A classic. Even before I started, because now, like, you can use, like, CT art. Which is really nice to run through things when you're like, there's a phone app and a, a desktop. But before that, because uh, this book is old, I, I had a copy of it. I've had like three copies of it because I keep when yeah. I move, I like lose it or something. I think, oh, I'm gonna take a break from chess. You know, I can be frustrating. And then I go, okay, I'm back into it. Let me get my uh, book again because it's just, it's just they're just good motifs to go through, and it's really interesting to do it, not with a digital. Thing, you know because OTB chess is like really where it's at I've, I've found out it's really uh just a different environment than playing over the board totally and using a, a physical copy as opposed to you know the the app levels is is fun you know I, I enjoy it and it's just it's a big cool book you know it goes great with the with the motif of my room which is you know chess and Tom and stuff you know I I have
0: this theory that you know, there's all these things to study. Like, there's openings, end games, um, strategy stuff, uh, tactics. And I think, really, if you're just good at tactics, you'll be a good chess player. Like, you could probably just study tactics <laughs> all the way up to 2200 without
1: knowing openings, end games, or anything like that. I, you know what? People keep telling me this. And, and there's a, a book by this guy, I think, uh, Michael La Plaza. And it was, it was like rapid chess improvement for beginners or for adults. And the whole idea of the book was just go through tactical problems over and over and over again. And you know, when I, when I did this for a while, my over the, not over the board, my uh, digital rating on chess.com, it went up to a certain point and I ran into a wall and I was like, what am I doing wrong? And and I, I think it, you, you figure out certain ideas. You don't learn them formally. You, you quite literally, you just, you know, absorb them off the board and tactics allow and put you in positions to catch them, to take advantage of them. Because most other players, certainly at our, our lower level, I'm a lot weaker than you. Uh, is they, they don't know them either. So they don't even know how to, to deal with them, but you just kind of stumble into them and and realize, you know, okay, that's a, it's a fork, or that's a, I can put you in just wrong. And it's not, it's not clear to the other player because they don't even know what they're looking for but if you study the tactics i guess you just you, you just get a feel for all these positions and how they work and what they mean the whole it really is the epitome of the idea that of reality and application being more valuable than theory and and speculation
0: that's a good way to put it like because the theory will change right like what's the best opening what's not the best opening what's the popular opening? but the tactics never change. That's like fundamental to the, to the game, to pro, like when they, when you get problems in chess, they don't say white to move and make a good opening move. They say white to move and win. (laughs) And I remember one time I was um, uh, living with this guy, Elias Zamora and his brother was 11 years old and probably about 25 or 2,600 strength. He was uh, Jorge Zamora for a brief moment. He was like the best prodigy in the world. And then he inexplicably gave up chess. But he was like beating grandmasters in speed chess, no problem. But it was speed chess. It was, he knew tactics inside out. So at 11 years old, it's like he had perfect vision. He didn't need to know all the openings. He was like 2,500 strength. He was the strongest player on the internet chess club for a while, even after he retired from no chess. No kidding. Like better than all the grandmasters, everything. And it's just from tactics.
1: That's really... uh. One, that's impressive as heck, but two, that that echoes something that my teacher uh, explains to me. My teacher's an international master by the name of uh, Eric Kislik based out of Hungary, and he says when he's coaching kids, it's – it's very you 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 can just give them puzzles and they'll just do them because up until like the age of like nine, eight or nine, they can't even grasp subtle nuances, positional ideas, strategic themes. They they just don't mean anything. They yeah. can't put them together, but they can really they're, they're really good at following uh, the the cause and effect kind of you know forcing moves far on the nose and seeing how those things work out and, and playing that kind of game like he had a he was a correspondent with a teacher he told me and he couldn't quite understand he's like but what, what the teacher said he said okay when i have students young kids i just teach them the opening patterns i don't i don't even tell them like what the theory is or anything just just teach them the steps to go and if he does this do that do this do that and that, that kind of works like the first 10 or 12 yeah. moves before the variations become uh incalculable to to the average person or really even the, the great masters yeah. they just know but when you're dealing with a kid they're not they're not thinking in terms of space or imbalances or putting together outposts for nights or anything like that they're just like oh that's a fun thing to attack does it make more sense to attack that or attack that and this is this seems really i mean maybe not basic but but elementary but when you look at the um what the computer recommends. A lot of times I go over my games and I'm almost 100% of the time when I make a move that is just range good, the better move is one that is more active that it, that it attacks something. So there's a lot of truth in this idea of just coming out and seeing how quickly you can attack and you can go really far into, you know, encounter people who know how to parry the attacks deflect them, defend set themselves up to not be attacked as easily and really they have a more solid understanding of the game but until you get to that point you can just bulldoze quite a lot of, of players just understanding the tactical themes and not even really understanding them doesn't understand is too too much you can just go far and make moves it's boom 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 check 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 and whatever you can figure out is what you can see
0: i think even you know like if, if, if you look at the opening tactically, you under, you get it that, okay, let's take the center of the board. So that means I'll have more tactical opportunities. Let's get my knight in the center. Let's get, you know, let's hold my queen back, but give it, you know, lines of sight so that it can get out there fast. You could even figure out the opening from tactical kind of ideas. So I don't know. It's like right now, when I try to improve I'll look at books like that book behind you, chess. Or there's another book called the Woodpecker Method, which is just <laughs> problems. And this this guy went from 2100 to grandmaster just on that book.
1: Wow, that is wow well, one book. But but you know what what I'm what I'm finding right now because I'm like I'm like stuck at at the 16 to 1700 level. And from what what I've been told is it. And it it feels this way too. That it, it, it's just a few little tweaks and understanding, and then you you shoot past it, and you look and go, okay, how did I ever like not know this stuff? Yeah. And how did I ever not understand that that's a bad move versus this one? You know, when like weaker player is gonna, you know, what's the difference? What's the difference? But but that's um what I really enjoy about the game is how it continues to refine how you approach a problem. I think the difference between the the best move and one that's just good is just taking into consideration more factors on the board. And the more mature you get, the more you are mentally mature. Uh, The more mentally mature you become at the board, the better you're able to consider all of these things and bring them together without getting confused or overwhelmed and go, okay, this is a good move because it, it deals with a problem, but this is a better one because it deals with a problem and creates one. And then this is like the, the, the double exclamation point move because not only does it deal with a problem, creates a problem, it also like improves my strategy or sets up a mating pattern or something like that.
0: Well, let me ask you because and this, uh, I hope you have time where this is going to go more than an hour. Are you okay? <laughs> oh yeah, man. I'm all good. All right, good. Because I've been I've been looking forward to this. And you and I have like incredibly different backgrounds, but I feel like a lot of similarities as well. And um, but it's interesting about chess because I imagine it's somewhat similar to boxing. And I mean, if you remember, obviously you remember the the Wu Tang clan. They even oh, yeah. had their, their first <laughs> their first or second album was The Mystery of Chess Boxing. And uh they were into both because I think with any martial art, and I'll include boxing as a martial art, I feel like there's a compo- there's a chess like component, not just where you're thinking of moves ahead, but you're also trying to control the center. You're trying to set the, the you you're trying to set the narrative of the game so
1: that it's not set for you. You know, I wrote an article about this a while ago. I need to like re edit it and put it back on my on my website because it's just really interesting how The two are similar in terms of what you're trying to do and how you, and, and how you're trying to do it more, more specifically. Like when, when my coach was teaching me, okay, here's the idea. You need to make sure you cut off the ring and reduce the opponent's space. And all I could think is like, man, that's like getting your rook to the seventh rank, right? If you can get them up against the back ropes and just keep them there and move, you, you have a much greater chance of winning the fight. And in the middle game, when the fight is going on and both fighters are fresh for one makes a tactical error, like stepping into a corner when he doesn't have to without without a proper uh, knowledge of, of counter-positioning or how to you know, basically turn and put the other guy in the corner, you're fighting in the middle. And, and who can dominate and get center control? Who can control the ring? And we actually call this ring generalship. Who is winning the fight even if they're not landing more blows? And you can win a fight by making sure the other person is ineffective in the fight as well. You know, every time they throw something, you deflect it, you defend it, you you parry it, you know, and then you counter, and even if your counters don't pack a punch, you're still still gaining little bits of control, and then over time, it just wears down. Time is analogous to the number of moves in a a ring, but in a fight, because as time goes on, the stronger fighter typically emerges, uh, not because his of his skill, but because of his endurance and what he's been doing. It, it, the little stuff. You can't see the small, subtle things that the average fight fan, I think, can appreciate. The little the little shots inside or every time he throws a punch, you deflect it and it hits on your hip. So he, he wants to stop throwing that punch because he's tired of it banging his knuckle against the hip bone and sure it hurts you but it hurts him a little more because he's not trying to do it and it's just over and over and by the end of the fight well well more like the the mid-middle uh early beginnings of the fight we'll say like rounds six to eight in a really long fight you can start to see how a fighter has really been just getting the inside uh the the interior kind of battle just beaten up and then eventually uh the the stronger Fighter tends to emerge. Now you get your knockouts, which are like checkmates. But the better you become, just like in chess, the rarer those uh, are. And instead, you know, you, you gain a small little space advantage or a small pawn advantage, and then you just ride that to the end.
0: Yeah, no, I, you mention this a lot in your in your books and your tweets and blogs and stuff. The idea of incremental improvement. And it happens at a macro level and a micro level. So it happens in general. Like every day I want to improve a little, I'll practice something more in boxing or chess or whatever. But on a, in a single game or in a single fight, the idea of accumulating small advantages, I don't think people appreciate that enough. Like in, in, in chess, um, you know, a lot of it is about, you know, blocking the other person not defending but blocking the other person from Mm -hmm. taking offense so you're not playing defense but you're offensively just oh they want to move there I'm just going to block it so and you you restrict their movements more and more like I'll just I'll tell you one quick story I was playing Kasparov in a game just like a casual (laughs) game and he, he he you know it was one of those situations where he has everything to lose and nothing to gain by playing me and um you know, if he, if he loses, it's embarrassing for him. And if he wins, it's no big deal. Cause he's like the best player in history. And in the, in the beginning of the game, he plays this, I play an opening. I, that is kind of rare, but of course he's Kasparov. He knows everything. He plays some move that I think is out of order. And I try to take advantage of it. And within a few moves, I realize, but no one else watching realizes except for him. Of course I have, <laughs> uh, the game is already over. Like, I have no more. I I don't even have a strategy. I can't even have a bad plan. I have like no plan that I can make. And he just like overwhelms me after that. He like accumulated some small advantages and then I was stuck. I was so restricted. And I imagine the same thing happens in boxing. Like if you just sort of figure out some way to dominate without even landing a punch, like you say, you're going to, you're going to win.
1: You know, I that that reminds me uh, of a fight. It was my tenth fight. It was against it was against a guy named Jamal Woods, who was a physically you know I'm a small or was a small heavyweight to begin with at only six one and I think my fighting weight was like two twenty when I was my my healthiest and strongest. But then that that that's minuscule, man. I, I shouldn't even have been a heavyweight in reality. I should have realistically been a cruiserweight, but. I'm fighting this guy, and and he's like six four. I think he was, you know, two fifty and like strong, not like two fifty sloppy. And and I went into this fight, and you and you go in every fight, and and how every fighter deals with that fear is their own uh, prerogative. Mine is is to just go out there and fight, and then eventually uh, get a hit or get hit. And once I get hit, I'm like, okay, I'm not fragile. I'm not going to go down. We're okay. But I'm fighting him. And, and I realized something probably in the second round. I, I won the, the, the fight on the scorecard pretty decisively. But I realized that as long as I kept busy, he didn't have an answer for a jab, which is not a powerful killer move. Uh, but as long as I did that. Even if I didn't follow up properly, he was he was going to be lost, right? And I knew that he won almost all of his fights by knockout, right? He, mm-hmm. Not a points guy because he, he's big and strong. I said, if I just keep doing this, I'll survive. I'll be okay. And by the third round, I said, wow, there is no way I'm going to lose this fight Sort of an outright robbery. Like, like, I don't think he knew it yet, but I knew it. And all I had to do was continue... That, cause, cause I had established uh, one. I and mean, plus, overall, I just knew more about boxing. He was a lot stronger than me, but I, I knew more and was the the better fighter. But his only way to win was neutralize, which was knocking me out. And he didn't realize it yet, but he kept trying it. And every time he tried it, he lost a little more energy, became a little more because jab? Yep, all and all, I'm doing is stand behind the jab, making sure my head, my chin is tucked and everything. So, so in the, in the off chance that he does get one through, uh, my my chin is 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 covered by my shoulder, and, and I won the fight. And I I, that, I always I always think about the fight because I look I look back and it's like it's like when you survive a near miss, you don't really appreciate it at the moment, but you look back and go, man, that could have been really bad. And I've I've just like looked at his fight since then and I see what he's done. I'm like, man, he that that guy really could have like put me down or hurt me it's a good thing i knew that those are the things you you don't even think about during the fight because if you think about them uh you're probably going to succumb to them that's, that's just how it works because thinking is slow and then you you feed into your fears and then you're not as as aggressive as you should be or maybe you're over aggressive either way you you're not in the the clearest space to be in when you start thinking about all the things that can go wrong the difference in, in chess and it's fun this way is that, uh, you know, when, when things go badly, you, you tend to be able to walk away from the board. So you're not too worried. You just looked at it and went, man, this is terrible. He I thought I had him and turns out it is just not so.
0: But but I guess with boxing, you could get end up in a hospital as opposed to just crying in your bed at night.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, that that's a, a risk you take every fight. In fact, uh, I just wrote. I, I did just publish this on my site, where I was talking about, you know, what the training is like for a fight. And one of the things that I, I mentioned that a lot of people aren't aware of is that before every fight, you have to sign this waiver. And the waiver effectively says that if you if you are like seriously injured or killed in the fight, as long as it happens within the rules of the contest. Uh, then there's nothing that can be done. You know, that that's unfortunate for you. And it happens. You know, guys get, get killed in, in fighting. It's, it's a really dangerous sport. Like, that. And I don't even like calling it a sport because sports, uh, people don't usually uh, try to hurt each other in a sport. It's more of a, something you do when you lose your temper. But in boxing and in MMA, That is how the fight is scored, uh, how the contest is scored. And the unfortunate side effect of that method of scoring is that it comes with a pretty big negative externality. You can sustain pretty permanent damage. I I knew a guy that was 17-0 and and had to retire uh, because he detached his retina in his last win. His win, not a loss. So that's the risk we take every time. And and as much as I, I loved fighting and as much as I got out of it, you, I don't think I would ever go go back and get ready for a fight. You know, my life is too fine now. Now I can look at things. Uh, it's like when you're a kid learning how to like. I watched these kids learn how to ski once, and they weren't even using poles. They were just on the on the on their skis, flying down the hill, no care in the world, because they didn't have a concept of being hurt yet. I have a concept now of of being hurt, and I got stuff to lose, and I'm like, ah. Oh. I don't think I want to do that again. Uh, but who knows? Maybe I'll wake up one day and change my mind.
0: Well, you were you were thirteen, <laughs> one and one at your retirement, right? Thirteen wins, one draw, one loss. Loss. And mm-hmm. uh, what was this is a naive question, but what was the most you were hurt during those fifteen bouts?
1: Ah, uh, the most I was hurt during a fight. Let me think about it. this. is a great question. Um, you know, I'm fortunate. Even when I got knocked out, I just was bruised up, nothing permanent. My two real injuries during the sport both came in sparring. Hmm. Uh, once when I was sparring, this would have been two thousand twelve, I got a blowout fracture in my right eye. and And here's the crazy thing uh, about about boxing. you You just get used to pain, right? So when I got the when I initially got the fracture, I didn't think anything of it. I thought my eye was just bruised and it hurt. And I, you know, I, I left, put some ice on it. It was cool. Two days later, we're sparring and, and we're, we're in the clinch and the guy nudged me with his shoulder and it hurt so much. I was like, OK, something's wrong. And it's one of the three times I stopped sparring because that's like a no, no, you never stop sparring. Uh, I said something's wrong. We need to go to the hospital. So I was with this program out in Los Angeles. Uh, that was sponsored my career at the time as an amateur. It took me to the hospital. They showed me the surgery. I still have it uh, saved somewhere. Uh, not surgery. They they the X-ray, and they said, "Hey, you have a blow fracture, and it's so bad. We normally let these things heal on their own. Uh, we need to go in there and fix that." So that took me out of boxing. I, I think the surgery was like the the end of April, and I didn't fight again until September. So it was like the recovery and all that. So was that four nine? It's like five months, right? Almost. And then in 2018, when I was training for a comeback fight, I got the same injury, like the Uh-oh. exact same injury, but in the left eye. The difference is this one. Uh, I knew immediately. I said, "Oh man, this sucks!" Like, 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 because because you're used to it from the other one. You know what it feels like. Went to the hospital. They said, "Yeah, you got this fracture." And it's funny, man. Doctors are are, are hilarious in general because and they, and they they should be like this. i what I'm about to say. I'm telling them what it feels like, and I go, "I had this injury before." Just, you know, get me. I think it was a CAT scan or, or maybe a uh, cat or pet. I think cat, the one where they, like, run your head. I said, just get that and verify it. They they fought me, fought me, fought me on it. I, I showed them my history. They said, okay, we'll do it. The, we, we get the, the CAT scan. I'm hanging out in my room. And this doctor comes down. And no one tells me anything, right? Doctor comes down. And he starts uh, going to, talking to me about plastic surgery options. And I'm like what are you talking about, man? Who are you? He was like, didn't you have the, uh, the injury at the broken face? I'm like, no one told me it was broken. They just, they just went through, but I guess they confirmed it. And they were like, okay, so here's what we got to do. But those are the, um, the, the two worst injuries I had. And they were both, both pretty bad because, uh, you, you have to stop fighting to let it heal. And then once it heals, you can't exert yourself because you have to like, I couldn't blow my nose. There was a worry about blowing that out uh, and things like that. But yeah, and you
0: can't get hit there again. Like, if you get that same injury again, you could go blind. Yeah.
1: Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, that's a that's a big problem there. So, so after that, I said, ah, uh, you know, life is good. My coach, my coach actually said to me, he said, you know you've you really worked hard, and you have something, he didn't say it exactly like this, he just was like, what the hell are you doing? You don't need to do this anymore, right? But but what he was saying is that, you know, I've I've done a lot of work. I, my career was very different than a lot of fighters, and, and that was by design, because I knew, I, I had a very intimate understanding that this was not going to last forever, and when I left, I didn't want to end up in the fighter's graveyard. Like, I didn't want to be a guy that, that ends up as someone's opponent where you just show up because they're trying to move another guy around you got a good record and you can fight. And if he beats you, he's exactly what we think he should be. But if he loses to you, we're not going to sign you or pay you any more money. We're just going to cut this guy. So a lot of guys that make a living like that, you know, where their only goal is to not get knocked out so they don't get suspended by the athletic commission for, for 30 to 60 days on a medical suspension. I didn't want to end up that way. I had no desire and I still have no desire to like coach pretty much. I wanted to be able to leave the sport on my own terms. And, and that meant, you know, for example, doing some things that a lot of fighters don't do. I, I went to school during my, my career. I went and joined the army, uh, during my career, not, not prior to, uh, there are a few guys who start and then take up the Olympic boxing program, but that's only for amateurs. So I started as a pro and couldn't do that. And I did that so that when I was done, I could go, Okay, when it was time to leave, I wasn't going to sit there and be be making a decision to stay in a physically hazardous, very mentally stressful and emotionally stressful arena just because I needed to pay the rent. Like so.
0: Well, how how did that feel? Like leaving. This is a sport that you obviously loved, that you worked hard at, that you were really good at. I mean, you had an, a a great record. I'm sure you could have moved on to to bigger and better, whether as a cruiserweight or a heavyweight. What did it feel like that first day after you decided, you know what, I am no longer currently a boxer. I'm an ex-boxer. So your label <laughs> changed. The way I, you I, you the way you created your identity changed. Now I know there there's so many other directions your identity was going and there's so much for us to talk about, but I'm just curious about that day, that moment.
1: Uh, relief. <laughs> like like super relief. Um there are a few quotes around the, the talk about this in different sports and different angles, right? Uh, Ray Lewis has this great, he said this great thing. Uh, it was on TV and I don't think anyone recorded it because I can't find the exact quote anywhere, but he goes, uh, you know, you get Sunday for free. I'll call, I'll go out there and play Sunday, you know, all day to my heart's content. It, what you're paying me for is Saturday uh, through Monday through Saturday the practices, the two days, the weightlifting sessions, the film study, all of that, you know, and and that really sums it up. There comes a point in the in the um, fighter's life where it's not really in. Uh, it's not really enjoyable, so to speak, because once you, you know, my coach warned me about this. he goes, you know, once you go pro, uh, it's not going to be nearly as much fun and for different reasons, but you, you know, I, I didn't miss any of it because I was, first of all, what, what, what keeps a fighter around if they don't want to be around attention and or money, right? Uh, had, you know, been making great money, uh, running my website and running, uh, running my website. I was, uh, private tutoring at the time, which was paying great as well. What I kind was, of tutoring? Uh, private tutoring. I was tutoring high schoolers, uh, in physics and math, okay. uh, doing that, uh, affiliates. I uh, had really figured out affiliate marketing and writing. I mean, I had really found my stride and was happy financially in terms of attention. At the height of my boxing career, when I was on TV, I had, like, 7,000 uh, Twitter followers. Uh, when I stopped fighting, I think I had, like, 60,000, and, and you know, I I was getting recognized in public from, from my internet stuff alone. So I was like, okay, I don't really miss those two things. I could, like, finally relax. I could travel. You know, when you're fighting, you, you can't really travel on your own. You got to, like, time it. And everything, because you you don't want to miss your gym time. And on top of that, when you're under contract, like you need to be in the gym, otherwise we're gonna probably uh, cut your your contract. Uh, you you stop thinking about because at this point I'm super busy. That was one extra thing that I had to worry about. And and the sport is just, is really unforgiving and brutal. I mean, you you form a camaraderie with your your other fighters because they know what it's like. But most people uh, don't know it. That they don't. They don't. They don't have an appreciation for how lonely and how difficult it is. Uh, fighters always ask me, "When did you? When did you know it was time to hang them up?" That's what fighters ask me. You know what hmm. regular people ask me? What made you quit? Your record was so good. Uh, 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 <laughs> that's what I just asked you. <laughs> it's a, it's a difference because because they get it. It's like. They get it because if you have anything else you can do, uh, there comes a point where you're like, man, I would much rather uh, do that. The stress is off. The the burden of, of, of everyone looking to you to perform well and then you having to deal with the ups and downs of that. It, it's not it, – the, the physical part is easy. You just show up and train, and, and then you'll get it or you won't. That mental and that emotional strain, that is something that not a lot of fighters are – are naturally equipped for, or rather I want not say naturally equipped, they're not taught how to deal with it because there's not a lot of people who want to even acknowledge it. It's a very, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a masculine, macho sport. No one wants to talk about their feelings and stuff like that.
0: But here's, here's where it reminds me of something very important. So I feel like there's two types of jobs or two types of lives. So there's the, There's the job where you go into work and I'm not saying anything bad about this. This is good for many people. You go into work every two weeks, you get a paycheck. You like your boss. You like the people you're working with. You like the work you're doing, but you always know that that paycheck's coming. You might switch jobs and so on. And then there's this, this other track where you literally eat what you kill. Like you do well (laughs) in life and you make money as you do well. And you do worse in your career and worse in life, perhaps if you do poorly. So like, it reminds me for instance, of day trading. So day trading is, you know, you're trading every day, the stock markets, and it's so intense and you have your own money on the line and you're competing against the other million or so people who are day trading. And it's just psychologically brutal, no matter how much knowledge you have about, Let's call it the sport of day trading. It's not a sport, <laughs> but let's call it the science of day trading. It's it's so brutal psychologically that w- when I finally stopped doing it, I had that feeling of relief as well. No matter how good I was or bad I was at different points, just ending it and knowing I was never going to do it again felt felt really good. I'm never even tempted to <laughs> to do it.
1: You, you know, and, and boxing is like the worst of both of those worlds. Uh, you, you get the worst part of the nine to five world and that you have to show up somewhere um, and, and you have to. And it's not it's not nine to five in the sense of you punch a, a clock or whatever. But no, I mean, you, you have to train every day. You can't survive if you don't. You have to be in there every day, every day. It's not passive income. It's not an investment. It, it is. It's not intellectual property. You have to put your body out there every day. Hone it, train and then go fight. And then then you get the worst part of uh, the eat what you kill environment, which is there's no security. Like I had to pay my own health care taxes. If I lost, my money was gone. In fact, when I lost my fight, I wasn't embarrassed. It was a horrible way to lose. Right. But I wasn't even that embarrassed. You know, my first thought was, man, I still got to pay my rent. Like, like it wasn't right. you know I wasn't thinking about the, the embarrassment whatever right you lose you win, I've lost before uh no big deal about that it just happened to be in front of a lot more people this time though I had like, I had like a a lifestyle not an elevated one by any means but it depended on the money that was coming in you know so there, that that's that's what boxing is like it really is the worst of both worlds but what do you get out of it? If you let it, it'll transform you. It'll make you a better person. I, it is. It has done wonders for me as a human. You know, I, one of the reasons I stopped drinking was boxing. Right? Uh, maybe if I don't have that that peg, you know, if I don't have boxing in there, I, I still think I can carry on the rest of my life and do well. But that that really helped me.
0: So part of you ending drinking was when. You you both joined the military. You started boxing. You kind of were doing both those things in parallel in the beginning. Yeah. Like you started your boxing career. You went. You joined the military, and then through this, did you have this instinctive knowledge that okay, this discipline will will get me over the drinking, or like tell me about the drinking. You you grew up in Pittsburgh. I, I lived in Pittsburgh, by the way, when you were a little kid growing up there. So so you probably lived in the in uh, you said in your in your bio you grew up in the projects there. But was it in the Hill District or where? Yeah, you grow up?
1: yeah. So you know, yeah. Yep, yeah, man. I um, my the first nine years of my life, I lived uh, in the Hill District. Up, it was uh, a Addison Terrace, I think, or Terrace Village, one of those projects. It was on Borrow Street. I don't know if you're familiar with the area. But then yeah. they tore that project down because I think Pitt like bought them because if you remember uh. the University of Pittsburgh is like right there, and they yeah. moved us across town to another housing project called Northview Heights. Where I lived until I was 18 in Northview Heights, they actually put—I—I I, I kid you not—an actual gate up around. Like you had to like one, there was like two ways in and two ways out. You had to like go past security guard, and that didn't do what it was supposed to do. But uh, yeah, man, so, yeah, you know the area. That's <laughs> very Yeah, cool. yeah, I—I I lived
0: in Oakland, and then I lived in Squirrel Hill, and I oh, lived Oh yeah, man. So I—I I lived there for five years. So, but we were, uh, I will be honest, we were afraid to go to the
1: hell district. As you should have been. It was dangerous. (laughs) You know, that, that area is so rough. Let me tell you some stories about that area. Um, One, you couldn't order a pizza for a while. The pizza delivery guy wouldn't come. Uh, Public transportation didn't even run to this one area called Robinson Court. The buses just stopped going up there. It's like a jungle. Uh, Trees Hall part of Pitt, Trees Hall where all the, the swimming and the athletic community was, they sat right on top of the hill at the end of Barrow Street, uh sort of so you could like look out the window and like see right into the projects. That's really close. So they had this like giant fence. It's not there anymore. You know, gentrification came through. Uh, but that fence is not there anymore. But they used to have a giant fence that, that surrounded Trees Hall. Because it was just a raw, it was a rough, crazy place to have a college campus and then this housing project, but but you know what I see that in a lot of cities I visited. I think uh, uh, Temple is right next to the hood up there in Philadelphia. Yeah, I wonder. You know, I don't I don't know what the. Uh, correlation is with that but I, but i've seen it so much i know that there is a relationship like like bad neighborhoods aren't just popping up next to universities uh, because of the the caliber of the people the university is bringing or something like no 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 uh, there's not something in the water either i mean i don't i don't know what it what it is but I, i've seen it in in many cities i think usc uh is like dead smack in the middle of like south uh that's, yeah, yeah, of, of yeah. USC's in a bad area. Yeah, <laughs> so that's crazy. I keep saying
0: bad area, and it's the area. It's like the area you grew up in. So I. Oh, no, no, no. It's, look, look,
1: It is bad area. You know, it, my 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 one goal in life when I was a kid was to make sure I was never in a position when I grew up to end up back there. And and now like things would have to go really really badly, and I still wouldn't end up. I just I just know too much now.
0: And Pittsburgh was like oddly segregated. Like there was the Hill District where there was like all concentrated in one place for these projects and so on. And then there was like Squirrel Hill where all the Jewish people lived and yep. Oakland where all the college students lived. Shadyside was a little bit more waspy. And uh, <laughs> then there was like a Greek area. There was the Polish hill. Yeah, and a little you know, Italy a,
1: over in Bloomfield and Lawrenceville. So like, yeah. Uh, yeah, Pittsburgh is a weird animal in this regard. People always say that Pittsburgh is segregated. and And my first thought... Is like, well, there's not really that much diversity here in the first place. Like, uh, for for example, if you go to like DC, Philly, Atlanta, they are like legitimate upper class black neighborhoods. Okay, uh, there is nothing like that here, and that always, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't think either way about it. But it's an interesting observation that the the city is so homogenous that we don't even have the kind of ability. It's either a white area or everybody else, pretty much. Like, that is how it goes. And meanwhile, you go to L.A., you know, all the East L.A., you know, hope you know Spanish.
0: <laughs> so so then in when you were growing up, did you, is this when you, when did you start kind of, getting into drinking and that became like your solution for, for getting through it. And like, what was, what was happening in your childhood?
1: You know, what's interesting. Uh, I didn't drink at all as a, as a child, you know, when I was the, under 18, I was not the kid that snuck out on with the parties or anything like that. And this is largely a function of, of where I went to high school. I went to high school across town in a different high school from, uh, the one that my neighborhood fed into. And it's probably like one of, if not like the watershed decision in my life that made a really big difference in everything, but it wasn't until I hit uh, young adulthood, like 1920, that I was like, oh, okay, people are drinking, and, and you're always looking for, well, well, a lot of people don't know the difference between being liked and respected. I am no different. I didn't, as a young person, I didn't really understand that but I think we all have a yearning to fit in and a, and a yearning to kind of be desired. And if people want to be around us, whatever reason that is, we don't tend to care that much when we're younger. We just want the feeling of belonging. And certainly someone like me, you know, I didn't I didn't have a come from a strong family or anything like that. And for me, the solution was, oh, everyone's drinking. Not only do I am I going to drink with them, but because of how I am innately wired and we're all wired differently, I just I don't like blending in in the background so i was like i'm gonna drink the hardest and the most of everyone around me so i can be like that guy here's something that happens that, that no one warns you about uh that stuff has many addictive properties not in the sense that like you become a, a, a crackhead fiend for the bottle but you start to crave all of those feelings and the only way you could get them was drinking or is drinking. Like, like for example, I, I developed the inability to to talk and have a just a casual conversation. It always had to be something centered around alcohol. Uh, bonding with people had to be around alcohol. Oh, let's meet up for drinks, and then it turns into more than just drinks. You end up, like, not remembering the night. That was, that was me on a regular basis. And I didn't realize how bad it was. I had, I had a few, you know, every, I think every person that stops drinking has a few moments along the way where they're like, okay, uh, maybe we got some issues. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's really bad. Um, I remember when I when I went to L.A. The story behind me getting to L.A. i, I was shorting it to, to stay on point. But but I won the Pennsylvania Golden Gloves, went to the national Golden Gloves as a boxer amateur, uh, won a, beat a beat a pretty high profile guy, and then his sponsors brought me out to L.A. That's how I ended up out to L.A. It was like an overnight thing, uh, no plan. Hmm. And I got there, and Los Angeles is a place where. You need a car, otherwise you're probably not gonna have much of a social life uh, if you live in most places. I didn't have a car and couldn't get anywhere, so I was I was really down. And the way I handled being down, I I, I, I hesitate to call it depressed, but but it was close enough. The way I handled that, I was like, okay, I miss being around my friends. What it mean my friends do all the time to feel good while well, we we drink, and I didn't make the connection. I was just trying to drink to feel good, and it wasn't working. And I was going through probably you know, a bottle a day or a box one a day. And the cool thing about being young and athletic, you know, is you, you can do that and still go perform and be good. And it was just like Lather that for and, you know, you find drinking buddies like that. And if you don't have a drinking buddy, you just drink alone. And you just keep that up. And then I moved back. And now I was around my friends. But now I'm doing stuff like drinking on my own, drinking a beer to go to sleep at night, stuff like that. And then I'm like, okay, this is not, not going to cut it. And it wasn't until I enlisted where I was away from drinking for like because you can't drink in basic training and then you go through trade dog which is basically uh it's still basic training but now you have a little more freedoms but you're not a full-fledged soldier yet as they as they say but describe why you enlisted I enlisted to get some money for school uh pretty much I and and because well that was the main reason I enlisted to get money for school but I also like made the decision to go to to uh that I needed a better resume. I was like stuck selling phones and I couldn't do any better. I didn't think I could. I I thought I needed a stronger resume. Everything was about, in my mind, let's get a job. But I I stepped away from all this for a while and I'm like, wow, I really have an issue because I can't stop thinking about this. I can't stop dealing with it. I got out, I came back from my training, went out one night, party, made a fool of myself, woke up and I said, okay, we get. How'd you make a fool of yourself? How'd you make a fool of of yourself? What happened? What happened? Tell us details. Oh man, details. I got, I got one. Drunk to where I can't really remember what's going on. Last thing I remember, man, I was, I was hitting on uh, a buddy's ex, and she was just a bad news person in general. Uh, never mind the fact that she was a friend's ex. Uh, then, and then on top of that, you know, I don't remember how I got to my boy's house where I woke up the next morning, and I said, okay, dude. Uh, you got a lot riding out. Because now I got something to lose. Uh, I felt like I was like, okay, my career's just starting. I'm in the military. I'm in school. I had just met the girl I'm still with now. uh, And I thought she had great potential. And I said, if I mess any of this up in my life, the trajectory of my life is going, if I mess this up, I want to be responsible for messing it up. I don't want to like, go, Oh man, if only I, I could control my drinking. And, and, you know, I had a, another buddy who had got sober that I met in the fight community. I had met him. He, uh, he had just got sober like two years ago. And he said, he's like, you know, you should probably just put this stuff on hold and see how, see how far you can go. And and it just rung out to me, man. And I said, you know what, let's, let's give it a break. Let's see where it can go.
0: You know, but that, that's a very mature way to think though, that to think that, Hey, I'm doing this one bad behavior that I can't control. And I have all these other good things going on that are, I'm putting in jeopardy. So I better make some both small and big decisions in my life to get things back on track. I don't think I was capable of making <laughs> that kind of decision until I was 50 years old. <laughs> uh, so, you know,
1: it's a, um, what, what, what really got me, I'm, I'm really sensitive, not sensitive, uh, aware. I'm very aware of the power of of your reputation and how people perceive you, and I really didn't like where I was, how I was starting to be viewed and perceived, and I, I didn't like the God. Like like I, when I tell people this story, I always I say, you know, I, I had this. I looked to the future and I said, okay, I'm gonna be 33 one day, God willing or will I have more options or fewer options than I have now at, at 28? And and I could not, I, I didn't want to be a loser. Like, like, I hate feeling that way. And I said, okay, this is the path to losing them. <laughs> Let me step off of it. I wish I was the guy that could crush life and drink. I know a lot of guys like that, but I, I accepted my limitation. I said, okay, I can't do it that way. It ain't going to get done that way. And what we won't be, we're not gonna end up like, like so many other people in my family or that I had grew up around. That's not gonna happen. Let me get this under control before I end up in prison. That's you know, was a big deal. Before I end up, you know, ruining another good relationship. Let's not have that be a problem. Uh I was terrified of not being able to finish good because at that point, I mean, now I still think college is a scam. And I thought college was a scam and then. The difference is now I have a degree, so my uh, opinion carries a lot more weight than just a guy who's who's mouthing off about it. Who and people can go, oh, you just can't do it. Like, no, no, I, I did it and and did it at a hard level. Uh, but but uh, at that point in my life, I thought that was my only option for having more options. So I didn't right. want to ruin that either. So it just made sense to to just put it all aside. And and I told myself, this is some true addict behavior right here. I said, dude. All you gotta do is like graduate or like win like ten fights or, or self-publish a book, and then and then you can reward yourself with some wine. Well, all that stuff took about three or f- I didn't self-publish for four years after I was drinking, and by that point I was like, man, everybody's like looking to me as this guy who made these changes. And on top of that, I don't have a compulsion to drink anymore. Like like I feel, I feel good. Like I like talking. I like being in control. I like knowing that if I piss somebody off it's because it was me. And like they're going to call me an asshole and they're not going to say I'm a drunk. Like like one of those I think some people would be 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 more comfortable being called a drunk than an a-hole. But I'm like, dude, if you don't I, I would much rather have the onus of of offense on my personality than because of how I behaved under day influence.
0: Right, because I guess that's another way of saying you want to be in control of who you are as opposed to some external factor and i'll I'll say addiction is like an external factor it's an illness that hits you and you wanted to be you wanted to make the mistakes rather than this addiction to alcohol absolutely for you
1: absolutely and you know what um I just I've gone back and like talked to some people who are who are going through like AA and stuff like that. And whenever you share, you, you know, you talk about your your path and your struggles and all that. Uh, but but a, a common theme I hear whenever I decide to stop into a meeting and, and say hello is a lot of people um, they don't know themselves. All they know is a person who's who's built a, they, because all their friends they, they, they hang out with are, are indulging in the substance, whatever that substance is, their life revolves around it. They make decisions based on it. And I know that I've been there. I mean, I've, I've you know, I, there was a heavy time where I was modifying my practice schedule so I could get to the bar and then showing up hungover or even a little drunk, you know? And, and that was when that was that important because I didn't have an identity outside of that. And so when I hear people say that, the hardest thing to do for many people who decide to get get clean, get sober, is building a new identity, becoming comfortable with somebody who does not do that, that stuff.
0: You know, and, and then it seems like what you did, which also is a very much what I'll call an, an eat what you kill thing to do, is you diversified that identity. So you weren't, you know, Ed the Boxer or Ed, the drinker you studied and and got a degree in physics. You, um, you know, became this internet, uh, you know, (laughs) expert, you, you, you've written books and we'll talk about those in a second. Uh, you, you went on to be a, a successful boxer and then quit at the right time. You, you, you've created all these things that you do. And I think that's, I think that's the right, my personal opinion, not everyone has to agree, but is living the life of the hyphenate, like no one could pin you down to one identity, it's <laughs> yep. really the right way to go because then, then you're not limited to an identity. You're just yourself.
1: Yeah, you know, and on, on top of that, it really, it gives you purpose. You know, so many people don't have purpose, so it makes it easy. Well, what's that old cliche, right? If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. There's a lot of truth in that idea because, because now I am XYZ person. Okay. Whatever that person is, all of those identities, none of them have, have, uh, have, have alcohol use in them. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm protected, not just once, not just twice, but like by four identities from ever relapsing. Okay. Because they all have a purpose. And when you have a purpose, yeah. it's like everything else kind of falls into the background. You're not really interested. I'm really happy that you know. I think a lot of guys struggle with this too in thinking about quitting boxing. It was easy for me to make the decision because, like you said, I had the, the hyphen life. I wasn't just Ed, the boxer. And if boxing left, that was it. No, there were there were so many other things to the point where like boxing was kind of this muted personality in the background that I that I had access to. But wasn't we weren't really doing anything? So I'm like, hey, I mean, you gotta go. We're gonna make some room for some other ones. Add the writer. Add the speaker. Add the personality. Add the, the 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 social media uh, influencer. Those those things. So so it really it really helps. I mean, not just in terms of quitting boxing, not just in terms of uh, quitting alcohol, but any change you want to make. I think having a purposeful reason behind it.
0: Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, it's almost like having a purposeful reason behind something external, which you're going to attempt to get better at. So whether what whatever topic it is, whether it's boxing, chess, social media, business, physics, whatever. So, so having a purpose there, which, which drives you forward towards getting better. But then also you, you've referred to this in, in your book about, um, I always forget titles, but, uh, not caring what other people think is a superpower insights from a heavyweight boxer. Great book by Ed Lattimore. I'm, I'm pumping up your book there a little, oh, thanks. um, <laughs> but, but it, in that you kind of refer to how, you know, having your own, I forget how you put it, but essentially your own principles and values, so that you know you can't be moved off that. You know, it's almost like a a tree with roots, so you can't be punched off that by someone who doesn't like you, for instance, and you're trying to please. And I and I think I tend to get swayed a little. Like if I if I'm in a new environment and I want someone to like me, I might not that I'll compromise my values, but. I won't necessarily think of them. I'll think more about what people are thinking of me than,
1: than thinking of my values. Right. It's when you, when you take, when you're, when you're not on center, yeah, I see what you're saying. Because, because I I think, I think a lot of us have experienced that it's like, oh, why did I say that? Why did I do that? That, That's not me. Uh, Yeah. I'll even, I'll (laughs) even
0: like wake up in the middle of the night, like, and say, I'll literally say out loud, no. I'll remember, like, something I said, like, earlier that day to somebody. <laughs> yeah. That... And my, my my wife will say to me, what are you talking about? I'm like, nothing. Don't worry about it. And she's like, no, no, tell me what you're talking about. I'm like, really, it's nothing. And it really is nothing, but I can't help but say it's like a Tourette's thing. I say, like, no out loud when I think of something
1: embarrassing that I said. Because I think we have an innate fear of rejection, and I think that is never going to go away. I, you know, I have the fear, too, right? The difference... Is that I tried to uh, put in enough prophylactic devices or personality traits against that, uh, you know, to to manage and mitigate that fear? Part of that is really liking who I am. like like i've 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 done a lot of work over the past seven or eight years to really like me. like to where I, I genuinely feel if you don't like me, you probably have a problem. And that's a you know maybe that's a little arrogant, right? But it's self-serving in, for, for my psychological health because I cannot let myself be deterred or take actions based on, on the approval of another person. Because if I do that, then I run the risk of not doing something that would help me get closer to my cause, my purpose, and lead me along the way, all for what? For some temporary gratification or approval you know, from a person who is likely not even going to remember uh, meeting me, or I'm not going to be a, a significant speck in their, in their uh, day-to-day activities or in their goals. So, so, you know, got to stay on point. You get, you know, you, and also helps you got to be comfortable being a bad guy. A lot of people don't, don't like being, being mm. viewed as the bad guy. And, and what I find is that as, as, as long as you have some people on your team, you don't need everyone. That's such a right? great point.
0: <laughs> and, and And also not being afraid of being the bad guy, not in the sense that you're going to like rob a bank and not care what people think of you, but just no matter what opinion or stance you have, or no matter what you do, there's going to be people who are either jealous or upset or whatever. And you're going to have to be their bad guy. It's not like you're a bad guy. You're going to be their bad guy and and (laughs) you can't convince everybody.
1: And and you shouldn't try, you know, we we waste a lot of energy uh, doing that and we could, be, I think every person, I said this on, on Twitter once and it, it would something, you know, I just say it, it stuck on me. Well, but then I, it's law if you say it, it on Twitter. It, then it's law. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I said, you know, we, we lose a lot of potential trying to fit in. I mean, think about how many kids would have stood out and did something great or unique for themselves or their lives if they were not trying to dumb themselves down or behave in a way that makes them fit in and gain social approval. It's a powerful force. I'm not denying that that is uh, like an innate human thing. But I think part of growing, part of what makes us human in general is that we can go, okay, I want to do that, but I won't do that because I'm trying to achieve or gain this. And the older you get, Mm. uh, the more... Uh, adept, you get at making that decision. Uh, you, you get at you know weighing out the factors and going, okay, uh, this is much more important <laughs> than than the, uh, the approval of a few people who, in a few years, you know, I may not even be friends with or cool with. Plus, we don't really have the same goals anyway. Why do I want to link up with them? That that was a hard. I think that's a hard thing for everyone. Uh, the internet makes it a lot easier today, which is finding people with with similar goals, similar perspectives, similar values, so you don't have to compromise on, on who you are and what you want to do just so you can have some companionship because that urge is not going away we're not going to get rid of the desire to be around other people i think you should just put a lot of energy into finding people that 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 let you be yourself you know
0: yeah i think i think that's key and again i feel like that's another lesson i didn't quite learn until i was 50 years old and which is you know, I guess I was a spectrum, like I was learning it all along, but I feel like I really turned the corner literally just two years ago. And, um, you know, even though I had career, you know, everything was going well, it just every now and then I would have be insecure enough in relationships that I would just, the, my gravitational pull would be off center. Like I'd be too much in someone else's gravitational pull and that's always a painful place to be.
1: Yeah, you know what it you know what what I what I think of immediately, it's like um it's like an un, it's unstable equilibrium, right? If it, it it you'll you'll be there and you'll have a, a nice balance and you'll have a, a strong foundation, but it's not a permanent one. Anything can topple it. There, there are variables. And as you get more secure and more comfortable, the harder it is to topple it, but it, it's never infallible, it's never invincible. So what you have to do when when something shakes you on your core, makes you want to behave a different way, it really pays to to have kind of to think your way through these things to go, okay, what why do I feel this way? Uh, why do I want to do this? And, and it ain't got to be like a, a long, drawn-out thought, but just a kind of a, a twinge of awareness. Like, what is going on here? This is foolish, you know? Uh, or, or, wow, why do I feel this way? Why am I worried about this? And and either you'll realize it is silly and pointless, or you'll dive deeper and give yourself an answer So so your behavior does not seem so out of character. But that's really the
0: key, is having that awareness to say, oh, I'm not really feeling well about this situation. I think most people just say, I'm not feeling well because, I don't know, I I need to try harder to get these people to like me or I need to make some more money. Like you say, that that's the mind of an addict. And, and right. in that, this case, being addicted to, you know, that, that same feeling of unworthiness that's inside every addict, that's what leads to the, I can't do X until Y, until something fills that hole in some way. And we make up all these different, you know, variables to put in, to fill that hole.
1: Right. And we're also looking for excuses too. And, and I don't mean like that in a, I guess it is negative. Right. Uh, so, so we're always looking for excuses. So, but what we're, what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to find a reason to not act. We're not trying, there we go. We're not trying to find a reason. We're not, we're not trying to explain away, uh, why something did or didn't happen. Right. An excuse in that sense. We're looking for a reason to not act because we're really afraid of, of the action. I mean, think about this. If you've, if you've spent your whole life trying to please, like trying to please people, uh, then you know two outcomes. They either accept you or they don't. And you're always trying to avoid that don't because that's what you do when you try and please people. But imagine if you went, woke up one day, how much of a shifter would be like, you know what? I don't give a damn, right? Uh, and and now now you've got to do something you've never done before which is not care, okay? And that, that is hard for people because- It's hard. That's that's doing
0: a thousand pushups a day for a thousand days. Yeah,
1: that that's being able to look at that rejection in the face and go, I don't care. In fact, give me more of it, I'm hungry. You know, I, I always say, uh, when you live true to yourself, you welcome rejection and that is not just something that sounds tight to say that's the truth when you are happy with yourself you want to get rid of people uh who are not going to to be on your page as quickly as possible because it's a waste of time you know
0: that that is that is so important like i realized for me i essentially stopped i used to make money go broke make money go broke i basically stopped going permanent. You always have ups and downs, but I basically stopped going dead broke uh, when I finally made it a real conscious effort to get rid of toxic people in my life. The slightest toxicity, it's, I had a, a one strike and you're out policy, not even like a three strikes and you're out, like one strike and you're out policy. And that worked really well. I mean, I think sometimes it unnerved people, but for me, it worked really well.
1: And you know what that reminds me of? CC, C- for you, your... Let me preface this. You're only, only going to go as far as your worst habit. I really believe that. Mm, mm. Uh, for you, it was hanging out with the toxic people. Uh, for me, it was drinking. And once you get rid of that one thing, your, your worst habit, your keystone anti-habit, as I call it, right, then everything else Falls into place. All of a sudden, all of these other improvements that seem unrelated start to occur, and it's just because you got rid of that one thing that was holding you back and pulling you down in everything you tried to do.
0: Yeah, it's really true. It's like if you're if if you don't do something like that, if you if you're obsessed with when am I going to get that next drink, or if you spend eight hours a night in a bar with friends drinking and, or for me, if I was just having relationships with people who are simply not good for me, that's an enormous amount of time that you could, I mean, that, that could, like, there's only 2000 working hours in a year that could take up 1500 hours of your time that you could have spent getting better at so many different things, which you look at it for, for you, once you unleashed yourself after the alcohol, you were a boxer, physics, Twitter, social media, speaker, writer. Like people don't realize the box of gifts that just opens up and spills everywhere once you get rid of that, that least powerful habit.
1: The opportunity cost of having a, a kind of good enough existence is is huge because you're just moving along, going through the motions, doing what you', acting on autopilot a lot of times. So you, you may be aware that these things are causing you a problem, but you haven't really did the work and dug into them. And every time you feed into this, this autopilot, you, every time you do the bad thing that are the unconstructive thing that you've been doing, you lose time that could have been used elsewhere to make yourself more fulfilled. You know, I reflect on the, the time of my life from We'll say 2015 to 2017, so almost three years. And during that time, I was simultaneously, this is all at once, I was simultaneously fighting professional uh, in school doing like 18 credits of like hard work. Not, not, Not slouch work for college, but like hard stuff that I had to learn. Uh, I was in. I was serving in the National Guard, so going to my drills, and sometimes you know, four days or five days, uh, trying to run and grow my blog, my social media, and still be a good, like a good boyfriend, right? You know, a good, good person in my relationship, and and I look back still, and I'm like, how did I do all that? Because it seems exhausting, right? like like. But it because I, I freed up so much time, because yeah. I was I wasn't wasting it on anything. I it wasn't even on my mind to figure out how to go socialize and drink at the bar. You know that that's just it. There
0: is a lot of time out there, and I always am fascinated by. I'll go out to dinner with people, and they'll say, "Oh, you know, I can't wait to work on my book finally," and then we'll just keep. I'll, I'll be like, or oh, okay, I'm done with eating now. I'm ready to go home. And they'll just keep going like one, two in the morning. Like, when are you gonna write your book? You're gonna wake up at 11, it's gonna be too late to write in the morning, and then your day's gonna happen, and then you're gonna be out at night again. You know, it really, it on the one hand, it takes a lot of time to succeed at something. On the other hand, the time is there, but like you say, you gotta get rid of the negatives. Sometimes people think, oh, I've gotta add positives, but it's just, like like, if you don't wanna die, for instance, the number one way to die is through heart attack. So if you just start eliminating all the things that cause a heart attack, you'll live longer. Right. If you if you eliminate all the things that cause strokes or whatever, you'll live longer. And it's the same thing with creativity and 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 all these different areas. Like you you've been involved in in you know you studied physics. You were fascinated by physics. Uh, again, uh, boxing, social media, writing. Probably a lot of people along the way told you you know Ed, you can't you can't do that. What do you think you're doing studying physics? What are you going to be a rocket scientist or whatever, (laughs) or, or you can't don't go to box unless you think you could beat Mike Tyson or, or don't, um, you know, do social media and public speaking. There's all these like eggheads in Silicon Valley that are doing that. Like did a lot of people tell you can't during all these different things, not a lot
1: of people. But there was always one or two people who would say something, and, and you know, you never forget them. I actually thought I would, but but it always fueled me. Like I'll, I'll never forget after my first amateur fight, uh, and I won by knockout. My friend said, and he, he means well. It wasn't like being a hater. He's just one of my great friends today. But he said, "So what are you going to do when you when you fight people that that don't just get knocked out?" And I was like, keep fighting them. Like it was a weird question, but I, but but it was only till later that I understood where he was coming from. And and then when I I joined the, the military, to to better and further my life, I had I had a friend say, well, well you know aren't you worried about dying? Don't you don't go away and do that? You know, it's a, like it doesn't matter how much you can get from it. What if you die? And and I didn't hear a concern from my life because it's like. I'm an adult, of course. I thought that that could happen. Uh, what I heard was, because now this is a few years later, and I'm 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 a little more hip to the game of human nature. What I what I heard was, you shouldn't, you can't do this. We we are used to this order of things. We don't want this order of things to be disrupted. I used to get, you know, friends would poke fun of, of like just how often I was on social media and I was like, uh, you don't understand what I'm doing though. You'll see, uh, you'll see. And a few, you know, now they, they ask for advice on doing certain things with their own businesses and marketing. It's not, I, I, I don't, I never consider that behavior malicious. Uh, what I consider that behavior is, is the way people deal with anything they don't understand. And they they do it through the lens of knowing me and caring about me, so they're not gonna like attack it. But they're still like that doesn't fit my paradigm. That doesn't fit what I know about how things are gonna work. How does this make any sense to me? You ever like it's like it's like a discussion. You know, you ever have a discussion with somebody about homeschoolers, and and they always go, well, what about the social interaction? And on, on all it takes is like well look at all the people who do crazy stuff they, they they are clearly not and they most of them if not all of them went to public school they're not it's not it's not like all the people in history who did crazy things were homeschooled and all the ones right. who didn't uh, were schooled in the system if anything it's probably close to the inverse but it, it's just we have a, a knee jerk reaction to something that's different
0: right and we don't want people to do things outside of it's not just you know our paradigm for doing things. It's our paradigm for you. So like your friends oh. <laughs> liked you as you were. Not at, not they liked Ed the drinker, whatever. They didn't necessarily like Ed the physicist or Ed the guy who people were calling for advice about social media. Yeah, you know, and, I, that, and that's not a... <laughs> that's not a bad thing. They're just is their insecurity too.
1: Not a bad thing at all. I have, I have a section I, I, in in the book. Uh, about Sober le- sober Letters to My Drunken Self, the other book. I have a section where I talk about this, where where I think about how obvious it was that I was out of control of my drinking. But you know, not one person, none of my friends, no one pulled me aside and was like, hey man, uh, we care about you X, Y, Z, right? We think you need to you know, do something, anything. And, and I thought about that. And it, it, I think a lot of it boils down to, well, they'd have to to turn the mirror also and be like, okay, well, if, if he's got this thing, then maybe we have this thing too, or maybe we've enabled it. It's it's let's let that be, let him figure it out, and hopefully he doesn't kill himself while he's figuring it out, maybe. Uh, so I think your, your friend's... Meanwhile, the point of me bringing that up, I, th- I think your friends always mean well for you. Uh, it's just that when a change happens, that changes you almost at a fundamental level, they have to figure out how to relate to you. And it, it, it's hard and it's new. And some of them don't always succeed. Those are the ones you have to cut off. But I, I think generally speaking, I, I'm not a big believer that that. You gotta get rid of old friends and you make changes or upgrade. I mean, if, if you gotta get some rid of somebody because, like, you know, they break the law or do bad stuff around you, that's another thing. But when you upgrade, a lot of times, you know, there is the initial unbalance, but then they, they figure it out and they, they see the new you and they, they relate to you and, and that changes. But yes, that, that change is a turbulent period that I think some friendships don't survive maybe because the the attack is a bit too aggressive or the person's not understanding enough of what's going on in the process. And then they fall out when they would have like done well later. Well, I guess there's, I guess
0: there's two types of people who are going to tell you you can't, or are going to feel somewhat threatened by what's happening. One is there's the type that, you know, values their friendship with you and they're afraid you're going to change too much, or they don't understand what you're doing. So they think it's going to be a mistake cause, just simply because they don't understand it. And like you said, maybe they get through that. And, and your key is to not, care as much about not in a bad way, but not care as much of what they think so you can pursue your interests and your passions and so on. And then hopefully it all comes together. Then there's the other type where they really are threatened by what you're doing in a oh. in a negative way. Like they're they're jealous. Like, oh wait, he's gonna get a degree, but I'm still not gonna have a degree. He's gonna think he's all better than me and, you know, or he's gonna be doing this and in social media and making money, but I'm still here. And that's a different kind of they're, they're more afraid in some sense of what's happening to them. Vis-a-vis you
1: absolutely. Uh, There's, there, there are some people, and I'm sure you have had this experience, uh, in, in one way or the other, there are some people who, who define themselves by their superior position to you, whether that be financially health wise relationship, what, you know, whatever. And then when you go and shore up that problem, instead of being happy for you the way a normal person should be, it really bugs them because it's like, OK, OK, I try to keep people around because because they're not they're not they've got their own demons they're dealing with. Right. where, where they're not secure or comfortable in their own skin or they don't or they have got imposter syndrome, whatever. Right. Who knows what the issue is. But what happens is when you when you start shoring up weaknesses in your life. That. Threatens them, you know, there are people who become friends with you when you're at your worst point Uh, because it's like a rescue savior complex. It's like they got to have superiority. And then when you get it together, they're not happy for you. They're not supportive the way they should be. And instead, you're sitting here all confused, like, man, is it me? Did I do something wrong? And then, Because we, we don't have a lot. Because no one teaches this, right? No one goes, okay, when you can prove, you know, sometimes there's going to be these vampires that latched on when you were nothing, and now that you're something, it's just something that's going to bug them. No one teaches that. So you get all confused, like, man, is it me? Am I am I really acting like it ain't holding on that I've got a little bit of things going on? And the reality is a lot of times it's not. It, it, it is a disruption of the status quo. Some people really don't uh, always say, you know, you, you want to see who's really your friend, improve your status relative theirs very quickly and see how they respond to you. Yeah.
0: I think, you know, people often ask like, Hey, what's the best thing I can do right now to make some money? And they think this is going to be the cure for them. But really the thing to know is exactly what you just said. Like navigating these different changes in status, these different changes in skills, these different changes in interests, people are the ones who are gonna be pulling you up or dragging you down like that's such a strong, powerful force in the yeah. universe, really, and like you're a physics guy i'm gonna i'm gonna i've I've been getting into <laughs> physics myself a little bit lately when everyone tells me I can't do it, but I compare that to like let's say, you know. Gravitation's a little bit weaker, so but but your friends are going to be this strong nuclear force that's going to bind you to their opinions, and you have to really work hard to to pull yourself away from them. That's an explosion.
1: Eggs, oh man, dude! You know I love, I absolutely love physics and math analogies to real life. It's just a great way to go, and I, I yeah. never never made that one, but that's awesome, and that's exactly what happens. Is that your friends grow uh, with you and support you to a point, but there will come a point if you're any in any friendship where uh, one of two things is going to happen. Everyone kind of goes their own way, and they meet up after a few years, or or keep talking social media, and and that's really easy to deal with because no one is trying to. There's no mass. There's no there's no center bonding everyone together there's nothing uh for for them to congregate around that's easy everyone goes their own way and they, they say hello from the 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 electron cloud and they go hey man how you doing and meet up and it's all good or everyone wants to stay bound and together and you're trying to get free and that is going to encounter resistance in every way, shape, or form, it's like I I And it never to, stops. By the and way, and it never, it never stops.
0: <laughs> because you're at, because right now you're on a, you've developed a methodology like like many do to be on a constant path of improvement. Small incremental changes, mm-hmm. get out of your comfort zone every day, experiment with new ideas and new things. That's gonna put you constantly changing. Every year you're going to be very different from the year before. Same with me. And ever since I've been on that path, every year you find out, like you said, you find out who your real friends are because your status starts to change again. And, or not necessarily up or down or sideways, but it's
1: just changing. You're just not the same person. And what I, what I've found, cause this annoys me. And now we're talking about things that actually annoy me. Uh, I'll be like, I am this person and they continue to reference you in the way that you were. The, the younger you, they to, to kind of remind you. That's what it feels yeah. like a lot of times. Kind of remind you, you know, you used to be this way, and how dare you be this way now, and I'm going to continue to reference you by the names we used in high school or something like that to the extreme. And it's like, nah, man, don't really rock that way anymore. And it, it, it's awkward because because it's a very passive type of thing, and so you, you can't really uh, attack it without looking like a fool, but at some point you kind of got to go, okay, dude, this is out of hand. Cut it. And you know how they how they deal with it after that, you know, determines the uh, course of the friendship or relationship, whatever, uh, however close you are. But it's I I just think about it because I think about it a lot, because I, I think at the end of the day, right? You said people are the most important thing, and we have to find out we have to find the best way we can to relate to them. And we have I think we all have our issues when there's a big change. In someone we we've known for a long time, whether it's positive or negative, it's just that we don't. A lot of times we aren't equipped with the the emotional faculties to recognize that this positive change has nothing to do uh, negatively uh, with us. Like it's just this person going through their own metamorphosis, and we can still relate to them. We can so we still have the time built in our relationship. But it doesn't. Change things, you know. People are jealous. You know, we, you have a new friend group, maybe that you spend a little more time with by nature of what you're doing or what you're trying to accomplish, and they're like, "Oh man, go hang out with your new friends, right?" But it, which is the horrible, which is like a horrible way to respond. But it's it's kind of natural. Is as weird as yeah. that sounds. You know, I, I I always try to understand why people behave a certain way, and then from there I can figure out, you know, the the best way to kind of meet it. And decide if I need to eliminate, mitigate, or you know, we just had a misunderstanding. We can chat. There, there's there are a lot of solutions to this problem, and it's always going to be a problem as long as people, especially now, but you, you can meet so many people and who you grew up around.
0: Yeah, and you know, I think it, it was in your book on the um, not caring what people think, and also you've alluded to it a little here where one solution. I think this I, this is what I wish someone had told me like. 20 years ago or more, which is that if you do, if you are acting out of this core set of values and principles, uh, and you know, those are good principles, then you'll have confidence. You won't, if just because a bunch of people say, Hey, Ed, you're really bad now that you're hanging out with those other friends. If you know, you're coming at it from a point of, of good principles and, 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 and good for, you know, good movement in the right direction for yourself, then you then that's that confidence that, you know, keeps you on the right track instead of being you know gravitationally pulled to you know these these bad influences.
1: Yeah. A, a lot you know a, a lot can be said for having a set of principles and values that you base all of your actions on. So how do you come up with those? Like l- someone listening to this who's like twenty, who's like
0: ah, I don't need to worry about that. I'm going to just make a lot of money first, <laughs> or I'm a good guy, but I'm going to school now. I'm not focused on all this philosophical stuff well, how does someone build their their like personal manifesto in some sense?
1: Uh, you know you have to figure out how you want people to feel around you and once you figure that out, then you want to figure out the best way to kind of make that that happen now th- this is very a very basic part of it. Because there's so much, I think, that goes into building a set of values. But if I was giving somebody who's who's young uh, a scratch point, I'd say, you know, treat people in a way that makes them want to treat you well. And when you do that, while simultaneously not hurting yourself or hurting other people, you know, I think do no harm is like a, a, a first principle kind of deal where like there's nothing really before it. You just kind of start there with people, if you start out with, you know, don't harm people. uh, And that's with not just physically, but with your words or your mannerisms or the things you, you, uh, you promote or whatever, if you try not to hurt a person and you also try to set people up to where their, their, their interaction with you makes them better. Even if by only an infinitesimally small amount, in other words, you're not trying to pull anyone back, hold anyone back, detract, negate anything of that you know, people either at worst case scenario, someone leaves from interacting with you uh, the same as they were when they started. If you, if you live that way, I think you figure out a lot of other things along the way. You know, uh, you, you start to build a more nuanced sense of a morality. You start to build a more nuanced sense of your values. But if you start with the heavy handed idea, the overarching idea that everyone that you encounter is going to leave worst case scenario the same as they were when they interact with me you start thinking about how you talk to them you start thinking about what you how you encourage them you start thinking about even how you deliver criticism a lot of your criticism comes will, will be purely constructive and in fact you know that's the idea to shift to pure constructive criticism uh, especially when it comes to dealing with people directly because there's there's almost no gain in and just criticizing in fact that's usually an act of like okay time to throw down a gauntlet uh you have this problem and here's what we're gonna do about it It's like nah man let's figure out how to solve this problem right then you know that's how i think whenever i even have a conflict with people it's like okay there's probably been a misunderstanding and if there wasn't like we were crystal clear and we still don't like one another that's cool uh but we don't have to let that dominate our thought process. Like how are we gonna attack this person, how to bring them down? So to, to, to just summarize, reiterate, uh, try to make everyone and everything around you better, make your surroundings um, better than you found them, make people better than you found them.
0: And, and and this is related to the not caring what people think about you, because let's say it's the the typical cliche thing. Everybody doesn't want to go on the dance floor at a party because they think everyone's looking at them. When the reality is, no one's looking at them. Everyone's (laughs) just cared about everyone's thinking everyone else is looking at them. So if you kind of, this is almost looking at it almost too game, like. but if you kind of know that, that everyone's really more, no matter how much you think people are looking at you, they're looking at themselves a thousand times more. And if you kind of cater to that power, (laughs) then that's a a good way to uh, help you also deal with uh you know, I don't care what people think about me. You always just put themselves, you know, you always kind of put yourself in their shoes a little bit. They're worried about
1: themselves. Right. It, it really, and it makes you, oh man, empathy is huge. Because if you, if you know, if you, if you know how a person, I, I man, it's funny. My, my, I started a YouTube channel, right? Not, not plugging in here. I just decided to, to get out and make some videos because I write a lot and I speak, but I just talked about, one of the big problems with digital communication is that it has divorced people from the uh, cause and effect relationship. They don't yeah. see how what they say influences how a person feels. And and they don't uh, see that because they're not there, right? There, there's, a, there's a whole set of reactions that's going on with your body, your tone of voice, even your eye movement that even if you're not aware of it, you're calibrating what you say to that when you have a face-to-face conversation for you to achieve your desired effect, okay? And if you develop that ability in person, then you're going to be a better communicator and you're going to be able to get more done and, and just be more constructive in general with everything that you try to do with every person you interact with. and And a big part of that Is that you're not trying to hurt them? You're trying to get through to them. You're not trying to smash the point through their skull. You're trying to make sure they understand it. You know, you can like you can yell at a person all you want. It's like they teach us some boxing, or my coach always says in boxing, telling ain't teaching. Telling, telling, telling. That is someone who has zero empathy and, and zero ability to look at a person and go, "Are you getting it? Are you understanding it?" I can see your eyes are kind of glossed over, right? They can't. Figure that out. But when you become more of a teacher, when you are trying to make sure a person understands you, you're going to pay attention to these little cues, change your delivery, slow up, speed down, pace through, maybe crack a joke or two to get your communication through better. All of this comes from being able to look at a person and go, okay, I see how you're feeling. When you understand how a person's feeling, or at least try to, not saying you get it perfect, but you try to, you tend to do a little more good than bad in that way.
0: Yeah. And so, so how did this all now lead into being like a, you know, you're, you're in the social media business now, uh, (laughs) you're, you've, you've written books, you, you, and, and by the way, the books are very valuable. One's the, or you've written several, the, the two I'll focus on most is the, the one where you go from um, you know, Drinking to Sober. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm always bad with titles, but I'll say the title. Sober Letters to My Drunken Self. And then the, the other one uh, that I that I read was Not Caring What Other People Think is a Superpower, Insights from a Heavyweight Boxer. Uh, he also wrote, uh, Twitter poems and insights. And, oh yeah,
1: that one, uh, <laughs> that one's terrible, but that uh, was, but, but we've, all, okay. got we've yeah. all got our
0: terrible. We've all got our terrible. And you
1: also have the, the four confidences. Yeah. Which is uh, free. Now you can just sign up to my email list and, and, uh, you get it for free. Really? I'm really proud of that one too. I'm, I'm proud of like everything I do, but, but some things like really stick. And I think it's because of the, maybe the impact and the two I'm really most proud of is the free book, the free confidences and sober letters to my drunken self. Cause I, I continually get messages, man, this book helped me dealing with trying to stop drinking here. Or I got this book from my dad and he he made serious change. I'm like, wow, you know, all I'm oh, doing cool. was, you know, talking about my experience and I get to help people uh, with that.
0: And, and yeah, so how did you get into being kind of
1: not quite self-help, not quite social media guru, but somewhere in between there. Uh, You know, I think I'm just, I I think we're all wired a certain way, right? We all have our certain strengths and weaknesses. And I'm really fortunate that my strength, I am an excellent teacher. And I don't think I'm excellent at at many things, but I think I excel at teaching. And, And not just, you know, some, you know, soft skills over the internet. You know, all of my students, whether they were getting ready for basic biology or the, the AP exam and calculus. I mean, they, they did a great job, and I actually had more work than I could do. I had to raise my prices, and then when that didn't work, I had to just tell people I don't have the time, okay? And I and that's because I, I really try to understand. Uh, I try to keep myself free to curse knowledge, okay? Uh, I try to make sure I, I never forget what it's like to not know and then work through the level where you do know, you know, I kind of know all the mistakes. I told my one student, I said, Hey, uh, don't worry. I already know where you're going to mess up in calculus. Like, like we already know that. So all you got to do is just follow my lead and you're going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. That same ability is manifested. I think in my writing and what I try to do, because my motto, my unofficial motto for my, my videos and my site is I take what I learned the hard way and I break it down. So you can learn it the easy way, and I have that because that—that's what I did. I mean, I—I think I had a relatively hard life. Some of it optional, some of it by virtue of you know where I was born and how I was born. But from that, you know, I'm here. No prison record. You know, no illegitimate children. You know, nothing like that, right? Uh, and and so I—I figured out a lot of things along the way, the hard way. And now I'm like, okay, let me teach these to you. And that's what the, that's what I use the, the internet for. I think, you know, some people build their following based on, you know, their jokes, some people on their hot takes about politics. Uh, For me, it is about trying to give people some, some stuff that they can use, you know, now I'm not, I'm no, I'm no fool. You know, I know the principles of business uh, well enough so that they don't work against me. I know the principles of SEO And title selection and keywords and all that. So they don't work against me. But my first principle, my first point, the main thing I try to accomplish with everything I create is to help people. And more importantly, or more specifically help them in a way that I can help them. You know, I could just put out uh, generic how to's about everything, right? And generic helps. But I won't one. I won't have pictures. I won't have personal anecdotes. I won't have stories. You know, I, I try to design my blog to where like, if you wouldn't read an article, you couldn't just copy it. You'd have to alter quite a bit in terms of like the pictures there and the details because it's all from my life and all what I've experienced. So that that's how it started.
0: Yeah. And you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, your message I really agree with cause, and it comes from a place where it's clear to see you're, you're always in learning mode, but you, 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 you mentioned the importance of not just struggle, but getting out of your comfort zone, experimenting and trying different things. And I think this is a really important concept. I think, I think on the one hand, repetition is good for teaching, but on the other hand, I think much faster is putting yourself in slightly <laughs> yeah. difficult situations like if you were boxing, it's one thing if you box someone exactly your height and and reach and and weight and so on, and you just fought each other every day. That will get you good at the repetition of all the moves you need. But let's say every day, the, the person you were fighting was a millimeter taller than the day before. <laughs> it was slightly out of your comfort zone. You'd have to really... Build up to you know as as
1: they start getting larger. Yeah, you you each struggle, right? You know, you you kind of learn. You I think you have to learn to become uncomfortable or become comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, yeah, as weird as that sounds, and, and you know, you still don't really become comfortable with it. But what happens? is that you stop looking forward to any reprieve and you just go into pure adaptation mode. I think a lot of people, they, they can't stick with something for a long time, for example, because they're like, okay, I've been doing this, this, you know, when am I gonna get something out of it? When am I gonna get the, the payoff? And when they don't get it, they feel cheated, they feel like they wasted their time, they leave early. When I think the best way to go into things is just kind of assume, you're not going to get anything from it, uh, other than the the satisfaction of doing it. And if you if you go into it like that, you'll survive the long haul. Like I think about how long it took me to become even remotely proficient at like throwing the jab in boxing. We're talking like seven years into my career. Uh, and, seven years to learn how to throw a jab? Well, well not well, not how to throw it you know, in general, but, but to throw it well enough to where like, like I was perfectly defended. The time was off. I could throw it from any angle whenever I was ready to drop it. Yeah. That that took a long time because all this stuff has to come together. Now imagine if I came into the sport thinking, okay, in three years, I'm going to be making like a hundred thousand dollars a fight and beyond and popping. Not only is that not realistic, uh, I'm going to be very disappointed when it's, uh, the, the fourth year and nothing has happened or it's like the third year in like three days because i'm I'm chasing some kind of gratification, some reward. I think this is what they mean when they talk about delayed gratification. I think this is another way to look at it, which is you don't go into it looking for it at all. When it shows up, it's gonna show up and you'll know it. you know? It's like like writing a blog. you know how many people come on and try to write a blog and grow it and all of a sudden they're like, man, I still only have a thousand readers and they're all like, a well, hundred readers and they are all people I know I send it to. And, and why am I doing this? Well, that's cause you, you didn't get into it for the right reason. You didn't, you you didn't have a, a process oriented mindset. You were like, all right, I'm looking for this and I don't have that. It's time to leave. You know, I, one, one of the, one of the things I say, I always tell guys in boxing, I'm like, look, if you decide to do this, do it for reasons that can't be taken away from you. You got to do it because you you want to make yourself better. You want to get stronger. You want to compete. Don't do it because you want people to like you. Definitely don't do it because you want money. Don't do it for girls because the day ain't really going to show up either. Don't do it for any of those reasons because those are external things that can be removed and taken away from you. I love that. Let me. I'm going to write that down. Do it for what? Do it for reasons. Do it for reasons that can't be taken away from you. That can't
0: be taken away from you. Yeah, I like I like that way of putting it so so like with boxing what can't be taken away from you
1: you can't take away the the sense of satisfaction that i get from learning a move or or successfully executing something you you can't take away from you you can't take from me the the health that i developed in a strength you know i i can i mean i can get out of shape i mean it's possible but it's gonna be really hard between uh, the way my metabolism revs now and, and the way I look at food and in general, our lifestyle be very hard. You can't take that away from me. You, you, you can't take away the grit that I developed. That is going nowhere. The, the same mentality. In fact, the reason I, I ended up taking on a math heavy discipline like physics is a little background. I was a horrible math student in high school. I felt like most of my math class are like like you know high c's uh low or, or low c's high d's not good at math had written that off entirely tried calculus and in, in high in college the first time i went because i thought i was supposed to did horrible at that had zero confidence in math and i had a fixed mindset it wasn't until i watched myself get better in boxing that i said wow I can, I can learn stuff, yo, like I can, I can really do this. I am not limited by, by the, um, my initial starting point, which is something I think I came up with and boxing gave me that it changed me to a growth based mindset. I, I think now I tell people all the time, you know, that the most powerful belief you can have is that given enough time, you can accomplish anything. And I got that from boxing.
0: So, so what, what, um, what attracted you to physics?
1: Uh, so, so, you know, it's funny, man. Uh, <laughs> I was when, when I decided I was going to go back to school, I made the decision based on uh, the highest paying majors at the time. Right. And physics is not the highest paying major, but we'll get into that. Uh, but all of them had math in common. And then I looked at like employee satisfaction and I think the top 15 jobs in employee satisfaction all had math in common. So I was going to go back to school for mathematics. That was the goal. And I was going to do that because I also figured I'd have to work and miss lab science and stuff like that. So I wasn't going to do a science. I enlist in the Army. I go through, and my MOS in the military is a uh, 94 Alpha, which is like land combat electrical specialist. And I have to go through this six-week course at Fort Lee, Virginia, BMAT, basic mechanic and electronic uh, theory. And I'm like, oh, this is really, really cool. I think this is what I want to do. And so I looked for an electrical engineering program. To get into an electrical engineering program, you have to take you know two semesters of calculus, physics, chemistry, all that, right? So I take the physics class, and in the first semester of physics, we do an experiment with uh, projectile motion, which is just uh, motion of a, an object under no other forces but the initial force and gravity pulling it down. And we do that, and I run my calculations, and I make my predictions based on a formula where the, the uh, projectile is going to land. And don't you know, it landed where I said I was going to land. And I said, whoa, this is like magic. This is what I want to study instead. So I found a, a school, uh, Duquesne University here in Pittsburgh. Yeah. They, have a, um, they have a dual degree program where I would get my physics degree from Duquesne and my engineering degree from Swanson at Pitt, the, the school of engineering. And I was going through that program and in about the third year. I started having some success on online in terms of not just the traffic, but the money I was making. And I said, you know, it looks like I'm kind of good at this. And I and I knew what I wasn't going to do. I knew I wasn't going to end up uh, working in the lab. I knew that I wanted some freedom. I always liked the idea of being able to to work, be location independent. So I said, you know, let me let me pour my heart into this writing thing, which meant. I had to, you know, the original program was going to take five years, but I took the, some of the credits I had in in my EE in the EE e part, transferred that over, and finished out some physics classes, and then I just took my physics degree, and and left. But that that's how I ended up in physics. It wasn't the original goal, but then when I saw how that worked, I was like, oh, so this I think, and I, and I think that's what I was after the whole time, which was an understanding of the universe, but also, you know, because I, I, I think in terms of got to be practical. I looked at the salary ranges for physics and the range was huge. It was like uh, starting salary was like 60 to 90,000. And it wasn't until I, I was like almost done with my degree that I learned why that is. There's no job physicist. Right. Uh, they just end up in different and in very different backgrounds, uh, software engineers, teachers, Might well, uh, end up in wall street, wall, wall street. Yeah. That's, I, I had a, uh, a buddy who ended up going to work at a firm there. Uh, so there are, there are tons of options and I, and that's why the salary range is so great. And what I would do eventually, if I like did something with my degree, I'd become a teacher. I'll, I'll never become a teacher that they, they can't pay me enough. But like I I'd, I'd do that because I really enjoy teaching teaching and there's something really uniquely satisfying about seeing somebody be clueless and think they can't do a thing and then because of my instruction where other instruction failed they get it and they're like okay i understand and i think that's why i got so much satisfaction out of private tutoring
0: and so so then you start getting into this twitter social media stuff what like like what's what's the kind of, um, it's what I call the spokes and wheel approach, (laughs) uh, towards, towards making money. Whereas you have something at the wheel, like let's say internet slash, you know, influencer. And then there's all these spokes like YouTube channel, public speaking books, blog, affiliate marketing. Those are the spokes Mm -hmm. around that wheel. What, what's, what's kind of like the way you make a living now.
1: So uh, uh, a few ways. So, One, there's like, like the books still sell greatly. I'm like very, very impressed, happy about that. Like like every month it's, it's an extra like 2000 to $3,000 from Amazon and just goes into my account.
0: And that's like, like and by the way, you, you self published, which is an important lesson here because that's two or $3,000 more per month than many regularly published authors make and oh, oh yeah know you know I'm,
1: I'm actually working on a uh a proposal for my my third book because i'm going to try and get a publisher this time and i was like i'm, I'm just doing the, the research into the stats and i was like wow i've i've done okay but yeah. uh, a lot of books don't sell that many copies uh, at all but but that goes to show the power of like really being there and and understanding marketing principles and building an audience and everything like that and, and developing your own platform. We live, I mean, we live in the internet era. Now, if, you, if anyone really wants it, you got to build a platform. It can take a while. I've been at this eight years, seven, eight years now, but once you have it, it's there. And then, and then you, you know, you funnel it off to your email list or other platforms, Instagram or YouTube. Uh, point is, you know, you build a platform, but, but that's one way. Uh, I make money is through my books that are published on Amazon. And then I have the guides and courses that I have uh, on. I I use Gumroad as a platform, but those, you know, are a little more expensive, but they teach hard skills. And I'm a big believer in, in charging to learn the hard skills, the soft skills, you know, whatever, man. I I just enjoy discussing those and I can give something back. I, that's why sober letters, I think I only make $4, not even $4 per each copy compared to my Twitter gods. You know, that's, that's a minimum of 50 I'm going to make for each one I sell and I'm good at it. And that's, what's important. People can come look at my social media and go, this guy knows what he's talking about. Okay. So there's that there's, there's the gods and the books. And then I've gotten really comfortable we're taking on gigs for people whether it be you know writing tweets I, I I'm a very proud grower of accounts ghostwriting their tweets uh, I you know I never divulge my clients but but I'm very good at what, this too very good at that and also uh, I'll, I'll write copy you know for guys or I'll clean up their letters and things like that or do consulting so it's a it's a nice nice little operation uh, going on here I'm really having a lot of fun with the operation. And the, the courses are doing well. The courses are doing great, because here's the thing: I, I never wanted to be a launch kind of guy, right? I understand the power of launches; they have quite literally changed my life. But the the main model for me is to drive traffic through to my site, so it's passive. I'm I am much more interested in making three to four hundred dollars a day than six times a year, you know, having a really Burn, burn, through my list, burn through my, my followers who might not be interested in seeing the heavy promotion. Right. Um, and, and yeah, you know, making making a decent chunk there, but then I got it. Then I have to do the work of running the launch and being, being present when, when everything about me is kind of the developing this, this hands-off approach. So writing a book and putting it on Amazon, that was a, that makes sense. That fits making these courses that fits even running a lot of these accounts. Uh, and I don't run that many because there's a lot of, it's like a little agency that you have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, I'm always looking, you know, for anybody who would be like interested in doing the work, but what you find what I found one, I really enjoy it. Like to the point where I'm like, uh, I don't really want to hand off this, this part or, or get any help kind of. And, and two, you know, you got to have a, a knack because this is what I'm learning is I write in different voices for different brands that somehow are completely different than anything I do. You have to be able to put yourself in in the heads of someone who don't or of, of people who don't think like you. And you have to communicate to people who don't think like you initially. They think like the person they're following or interacting that you're writing on their behalf. And you have to do it so effectively that you achieve a similar result that you get as if you were writing for yourself to your audience. That is a rare skill. And that's not, you know, I don't know if that's, that's natural or developed. I just know I, I can do it and I figured out how to profit from it. And I'm, I'm really, really happy about that.
0: And is it, is, are, are your
1: clients doing well? Are they achieving the results yep. that they had hoped for? Yep. And the, and the cool thing about, about this kind of eat what you kill business, look, if they're not getting the results, they hope for They're going to let you know explicitly, uh, you're just not going to get paid. They're going to, they're not going to renew.
0: I mean, the E When you kill philosophy is so important because it's just, it's a different way of living and people don't, people are, people are afraid of it without realizing that it's actually a great, it's stressful, but so is working a regular job, but it's, it's stressful, but then it's diversified. So something like a pandemic had happen, and you still have all your things. Maybe it even gets better. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Um, this has been. Non-effectual for me, Uh, and I I hesitate to say I am doing better because of it. But I'm I'm having my highest earning year, and it just happens to be the year of the pandemic. So maybe you know, maybe correlation, maybe causation. uh, Who knows? But when you when you live this life, there there are no safety nets, (laughs) which is you know cool. There's no no backup. You got to learn a lot, but it's worth it. But but you got to know if it's for you. I think there are some people doing it who it's not for them. They're just, they're just doing it because they, they think they should do it because everyone they see on social media is doing it. I have a friend who, who's a high earner, and she, she's in the pharmacy industry. And she, she said to me one day, she goes, you know, I really respect everything you're doing but I just, I just don't want to do all that by myself. I'd much rather just show up to work. And that that's cool. you got to know yourself. Yeah. You know, there, there is a path of success for every personality I find, but you have to know your personality. You have to know yourself because the worst, the last thing you want to do is end up uh, on this side of things. And you ain't got the temperament or the, um, the stomach for risk because this would keep you up all night.
0: Well, you know, you say something, in one of your books, that one way to find your passions. And I'm a strong believer in this exact concept, which is look at what you were really interested in when When you were were 10. 10. Yeah. I've always, (laughs) I've always said 12, but 10 seems good enough as well. And, uh, you know, I think that's really true. And I think people ignore that because they think, Oh no, I was interested in like comic books and superheroes, but they, I always tell people age, what you were interested in. Mm -hmm. There's some way in which that concept aged that you can still do it. Like if you were interested in sports, you could maybe do something professionally with fantasy sports or, you know, write a column about it or run a league or make an app or whatever, Um, you know, that's just an example. But I think that's that's really true about exploring all these areas that if you were interested in a 10, it's gonna age and you'll still be interested in them.
1: Absolutely. And and you know, I think we have a fear. I think a lot of people have a fear of of seeing that, like, you know, what can they, what can they do, okay? What can they do that is different than a lot of people around them? Because there's a lot of, I mean, just I will call it invisible, uh, pervasive peer pressure to follow the route. Of you know you go to school you know get a job right. you know maybe you get married maybe you don't right and then these days uh, who knows but it, it's it's a pressure to conform and when you decide you're gonna go another way uh, you you it's like we were saying you know we were talking about earlier that that uh, that that non support we'll just call it non support not anti support but non support a lot of times you get. And people are like, you know what? I really, I like this tribe and I need this tribe, so I don't think I'm going to uh, disown this tribe. And they, they fall back into it. And if you don't, if, if you're not built naturally rebellious or take a risk or you don't have people around you to support you, I will fully acknowledge how I mean, it's got to be very difficult. Imagine if you had no supporters at all and and it wasn't naturally part of you this way to just take risk and you were like but I want to do it and no one around you kind of supported that, that that's a that's a big leap you have to take and i don't think a lot of people uh can do it <laughs> or well, what, we'll do. what what are small
0: ways to get out of your comfort zone like you know what well like what's if somebody's listening to this and saying like well i just want to do one little thing i'll i'll try to get out of my comfort zone today
1: what what should i do oh man i so the best thing you can do if you are you know, stuck in a, in a place of comfort, look at something that you want to change. And a lot of times uh, they, they, they don't have a visible like other people see, wow, that's different. And for most of us, that is our physical appearance, whether it be uh, our level of fitness or our level of fashion Or if you're like on point there, somehow, you know, add an accessory, somehow like a tattoo or whatever, right? It's not a big deal. But you do these little things and, and you get to see one, what happens when you change that you, that you change how people respond to you and you get comfortable with that because what a lot of our fear of change is how we're going to be perceived, whatever. But if you go and put some muscle on it's like, wow, okay, people look at me. I lost some fat. Wow, people see that and I feel different and I made this change. Now I've got changes. Okay, I usually dress like a slob. Yeah, people are going to notice when I dress nice the first week, but then when I've done it for three weeks in a row, then then you're going to have to deal with another issue, which is people feeling insecure around you. But you have to learn to deal with it. There's no way around this, right? So you, you make these little changes in this area. and You get used to what it feels like to make shifts and do a thing differently than what you think you have. Um, not even what you think, that you've de facto identified with. If you've always been that guy that has that, that doesn't work out, you become that guy that works out. And, then you know, you ain't got to stick with it forever, but you do it for eight weeks. See what happens. See how you feel. See how people talk to you, respond to you. And now you are doing something that because the the world's going to respond to you differently and it's going to force you uh, into a different level of, well, it's going to force you out of your comfort zone. And you do it in a way that that benefits you too. You know, it's not like you go, oh, you know, let me go, go like talk to some stranger and say something crazy and see what they say. Like, no, you don't know how that's going to turn out. But you do know the benefit of improving your dress, your style. Uh, your fitness, all that. Once you get used to that, then you just port it over to something else. You're just like, okay, I'm used to... And you, you remember that feeling. It's like, okay, I remember how everyone looked at me when I went and did... When, when, I, wore that, when I wore that suit for the first time. Uh, it's probably going to be a similar feeling when I enrolled in this class and I'm like, the oldest guy there. But you're doing it because you want to get something out of it. And you got to remember that and you just deal with it. I I mean, because I, I didn't... I mean, I I... I Dealt with it, but I wasn't like you know freaked out. I was the oldest guy in all of my classes because I didn't go back to school till I was 28. I was the oldest guy in all my classes by by easily 10 years. I mean, there are references I just didn't have. Man, I didn't even know what Hinge was. People were talking about that. It's like okay, new dating app. Check, got it right. Uh, so Someone they made fun of me because I didn't know how to use a PowerPoint once, they, but they were they were you know being they were being being sweet. They taught me how, and I figured out uh, what to do,
0: but. Did you ever feel like, hey, I could just crush any of you kids? What? Well, what? Well. <laughs> <laughs> I could smash you in two. Uh,
1: you know, I, I never, no, because they, they weren't, they weren't mean, but it was, it was, um, interesting. Some of the conversations we'd have because they get a glimpse into the future, right? I mean, it's like okay, you know, we, we just talk different things, and, and you realize that. You have a lot more in common than you have uh, than, than you're different than people even across uh, a whole decade of, yeah. of life. So but back but back to the main point, really, these little steps that change you positively in a way you get a benefit from, and seeing how the world responds to you when you do that first, that gets you used to a different response, and then you can just transmute that. The different things, and just remember how you dealt with it there. You know, you develop strategies, which is like you know, focusing on yourself really helps at first because that's what you're trying to do. But then you know, you put your mind somewhere else. And uh, one thing that ha- helps me when I'm in an uncomfortable situation, I like to think about how uncomfortable the other person's got to be, and and then I try to go, okay, well, if you, if I'm uncomfortable having this conversation, then I know you got to be like dying. That's how I see everything. And then that reminds me that I'm, I'm the one, you know, in control. I'm the one putting, uh, putting them on their back foot kind of deal.
0: And I, I like the idea of first trying things out in the outside the comfort zone that, you know, regardless are good for you, as opposed to just kind of like random, like, like you say, like the typical thing to go up to a stranger and talk to them and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I, I like that idea of first trying get out of your comfort zone, but in comfortable ways, like work out a little more or eat a little better or wear a tuxedo to work today and see what happens. And, you
1: know, anything like that. People are really better or worse. They, they just, they don't like to rock the boat, you know? And, and when you, because they get comfortable in everything around them, but that's a slow death, man. And so you have to get used to not dying slow. And that's going to be a little uncomfortable for you. You got to get used to changing the stop. You got to taking a, a one-mile run, you know, every day just because it's good for you. Let's not go crazy. Yeah, let's Like, like a <laughs> one-mile run.
0: <laughs> that's too much for me. Uh, no, I bet I could probably handle it. I don't know. I'd have to build up. But um, I asked my daughter. My daughter just – just um, she's 18 and she wanted to help me do podcast research. And so you're the first person I asked her, I just threw your name at her. I didn't give her any background or anything. And she sent me a bunch of questions. And (laughs) this one question I thought was really uh, good, which is, uh, she says, how does your interdisciplinary expertise help you when you're learning? She specifically said, how does your interdisciplinary expertise allow you to excel? For example, is there anywhere being any way being a professional boxer has helped you in the chess or social media world or vice versa?
1: Good question, Molly. That is a fantastic question, right? So, I think what happens is that I learn a certain number of supporting skills. So, let's let's just start out with the big elephant in the room. Punching people in the face is not made me better at physics and and solving differential equations has not made me any better at chess, okay directly but the supporting right. skills they've they're they're what made a difference. for example, in boxing I had to learn because when you're coming up as an amateur um, and as a professional a lot of times you have to get people to come see you fight. Because the show needs to support itself and they put fighters on who can sell tickets and get people to come. So so you got to be likable. You got to be interesting. And you got to and you, you what which, which you're doing a lot of times, you're asking someone to give up 30 minutes to an hour and travel to get to an event where if you do your job correctly, it's not going to really last more than five minutes. If that. Right. And they came for you. That's awesome. That is imagine being that likable as a whole. You got to learn to build a fan base and you have to do it. Otherwise you're not going to survive very long on the local circuit and they're going to throw you in deeper sooner than you need to be. And if I'm not too clear on this, when you are supporting, uh, when, when fighters get paid, they get paid a purse and that comes from the tickets sold on the local show. If you don't sell enough tickets, What's going to happen is that someone with a backer, usually someone really good, much better than you, that's how they got a backer, uh, they're just going to use you to build this guy up. And you are, and, and and matchmakers are good. They don't really make mistakes. They know you're going to lose uh, short of a, a big surprise, and then you ruin your career. So if you want to if I wanted to have any su- chance of succeeding, I had to figure out how to be able to, to build a following. How funnily enough, you know, that crosses over into social media. Okay, on a different skill set, there is, I mean, I can't think of anything that trained my mind better for communication and precise language use than lab reports in physics. Because there are a lot of terms we just use interchangeably in colloquial speech that that there's a big difference. You know, there's a big difference between current and voltage. And the average person doesn't think about that when they when they think about electricity. Right. Speed up versus your acceleration versus velocity. Two different things. And if you just, you know, use whatever one, uh, you'll be you'll make a mistake. So I learned to be a really precise communicator from physics and that's crossed over into my writing. In fact, you can I me mean, I don't I don't have any of it up anymore, but you can actually see the evolution of my writing and a really big part of that was I started the blog before I was enrolled in in my uh, program. Going through it, because I was doing, you know, writing, work, breaking down American journals or physics articles and making sure I understood them so other people could understand them and understand the points I was arguing, that made me a better writer for other things not related to science. The ability to sit and break down problems and really sit and work, I mean, some of these mechanics, we'd, we'd have 10 problems of mechanics, and it would, it would take, realistically... Uh, you know, five to seven hours to work these problems out, hmm. and and to sit there and and you know see it, visualize it, you know come up with an equation, solve it, check it, make sure it was right. Could you know collaborate with other students and all that? So so now I'm learning not just a solo skill, problem solving and how to study, which I applied to fit uh, chess, but I'm also learning again, at this point refining my ability to work together and collaborate, which has really helped me in my social media. So, so all these things are really come together The supporting skills that make you good at one thing. They tend to have applications elsewhere,
0: right? It's a, and, and you call them supporting skills. I call them meta skills. It's like the, these, this is almost the language you need to speak to learn something. This is like a meta language Mm -hmm. that of learning and the same techniques are going to apply to physics. Uh, some of them will apply to chess, boxing, social media, writing, you know, and whatever else you do, like it's the same kind of disciplines, grit, you know, some things you need a teacher, some things you need repetition, some things you need to experiment. And you'll, you'll instinctively start to know better and better. The more interdisciplinary things you study.
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, one, one thing I'm, I'm a big fan of, of thinking about is, you know, how you do one thing is how you do other things. And and that's not entirely true, but it's true enough for you to make some useful predictions, and and from those do some you know pretty good work. Like my the big thing I talk about is how the, how boxing changed my mindset from fixed to growth, and and that was a big weakness, and I never encountered it because I was a smart kid and I didn't have any problems until I had a problem, mathematics. And then I was like, ah, oh, forget it. I'm not, I can't do it. This isn't for me. Boxing changed that, man, because I wanted to be good at, I wanted to be good at fighting. Like, so I was going to do what it took and I put a lot of time into to it. And when I sat and reflected on it, I said, wow, I came into this sport. And I was like, I mean, you can do videos, man. No footwork, awful. People around the city, like they, they, I had a kind of a rap. It's like a guy that couldn't really fight, but just knock people out. And then I, I developed, 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 and learned these skills, and I said, okay, if I can do that there with something as difficult as boxing, it uh, should be no problem with 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 mathematics or chess, right? <laughs> so that's uh that's how that that helps, and and now you know I really don't I'm 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 not intimidated about learning a thing. Right now I'm in this program, I'm in a few programs where I'm really trying to push my my Spanish fluency up to a B2 level. I've got like functional. Like you could drop me off in the airport and I won't end up with a bag of cocaine in Colombia, kind of deal, uh, Spanish, but, but I'm not as comfortable as I want to be, but, but I learned the principles of how to learn from many other things.
0: You know, it's funny. I, I want to learn Spanish, but, uh, I have a fixed mindset when it comes to languages. (laughs) I just don't seem to be good at languages. but maybe I'll give it another try. You know, there was one, Metaphor I wanted to bring up. You were talking about that one fight you had um, earlier where you were jabbing a lot and that gave you confidence that you could keep him at bay while he used all his energy and eventually you'd win. Like you'd find your moment, and he'd be all worn out from trying to knock you out because you've just been jabbing and keeping him at a distance. And then you'd you'd find your moment and and take it and, and you'd win. Do you remember that 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 fight? That, yeah, 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 yeah. And so it reminds me, um, this is just a random uh thing, but an, an analogy in chess. There was a match in in like 19, I want to say 1985, between the British champion Nigel Shore and the US champion Lev Albert. And I remember playing through that match and and Nigel Short won like nine to one. He like crushed the U.S. champion. And all he would do every game is he would just like attack the queen with a pawn, attack the <laughs> queen with the knight, attack the queen with the bishop. He just kept annoying him and annoying him, annoying him. And finally just the U.S. champion, Lev Albert would just collapse every time. Just kind of like Nigel Short would do these jabs, these tactical little jabs, just annoying him until finally he'd push him into a weaker position and then he dominate. And uh, I think there's, there's something to this, like the power of annoyance, like keeping people, <laughs> you know, that's how you kind of keep in control. Like even, even like, I don't know, even like in persuasion, sometimes you can say like in a negotiation, sort of switching, switching angles several times, just keeping control of the, the dialogue, the narrative somehow. Yeah, if you, can, know, yeah, so, if you, if you can
1: keep people reacting, then you're gonna be in a pretty good position. Um, I, I think the most dangerous spot for anyone to fall into in any contest, whether that be physical, mental, uh, is to be the one acting second consistently and, and acting second yes. without a plan, right? Reacting, not setting up something, not counterattacking, because that means that even no matter how adept your defense is, um, what what do they say? It's like, there's like uh, in narcos. There's this great quote. Where they go, the the Narcos have to keep getting lucky. We only have to get lucky once. And that is what it's like when you're on defense. You have to continually be accurate. But the person attacking you, the person on the offensive, they only got to get through once, maybe twice, and that's it. So your job, by nature of just uh, the the, uh, rules of engagement or, or the way an engagement is set up, your job is just harder. So it's always better to be the cause of action than reacting to it.
0: Yeah. Like in chess, there's comes a point, like if you're always on the defensive, there comes a point where you're like, Oh my God, this is just going to be a drag for a long time right now. And I'm either going to get lucky and get out of this and turn the tables <laughs> or, or the likely scenarios they're just going to win, but I, I'm not bad enough to resign yet. So,
1: right. So you're just like kind of stuck there. I was just going over a game uh, man, I wish I, I I could remember who it was. It'll it'll come to me. But oh, it was uh Nimzovic and and someone. It was Aaron nimsevic and he got yeah. the, he got the Razan in 23 moves because uh the guy played the Queen's Gambit and and Nimzovic was black and he came out and he eventually got him uh he eventually got his knight lodged on C4 after the um uh, after the B pawn and the Deep Pawn were gone, so so and, and the and the White so Bishop was off the board, it. so nothing could get it off the gov. and that that eventually ran the game out. And he was just like he resigned, even though he was only uh, Pawn behind, because he he's looking and he's just like you know, it's like you were saying about that game you were playing against yeah. Kasparov. He was like, there's there's no way, like there's nothing I could do. And and the book went through the analysis and was like it could have continued this way, but he's still going to be down and down and did you know, a few different ways. But but yeah. <laughs> I, here's, here's another metaphor. This one's
0: from physics. I'm just curious how you, if you'll appreciate this one. So you mentioned velocity and acceleration before. So I always think of relationships in terms of calculus. So right when you meet somebody, you really like them and, and the velocity, the first derivative is, is positive. It's, it's, you're, 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 you like them at a greater distance from where tomorrow, from where you like them today, as from when you like them yesterday, like the velocity is still going up really fast. And then at some point, the second derivative, the velocity is still going up, but the acceleration <laughs> starts to go down a little bit. So the second derivative has turned negative. And that's when problems start to happen in relationship. Everything's still great. You still like each other more and more every day, but the acceleration, you're starting to settle into a routine. And that's the, the every change in derivatives from positive to negative could be, you could still keep the relationship going, but it's a test of the relationship. So that's the calculus of relationships. Oh,
1: yeah. You know, the, <laughs> first, <laughs> that's a great analogy. Uh, and two, it, it, it's very similar. I think I have the post on my site, or I wrote it to my newsletter, the calculus of happiness. And I talked about ah. how, the first derivative, you know, the change in your position, that is just making progress. And I was saying that happiness is is not a location, but it's it's a derivative. It's a rate of change. When you make progress towards something, that is happiness. When you are lose, when you lose something, when the first derivative is negative, uh, that is sadness. That is, you know, when you, when you don't feel so good. And then the, uh, the second derivative of position I was, you know, was talking about that is like how euphoric you are, like, like how much of an impact that happiness makes. And then the second derivative is like, you know, how, how quickly you, you know, you get down in the dumps and, and really does it, does it keep you down or, or hold you down? It was, but, but the whole idea of the you know rates of change, the, the, these states, of of being whether they be dependent on another person or yourself they they're not locations you know there's there's no there's no relationship where I'm like ah I'll get that one and that'll be all good you know it doesn't work that way
0: right right because the second derivative can't stay positive forever and to get that addictive dopamine going you need acceleration to constantly be positive not just velocity that's why it's like you could still be kind of high from Either alcohol or a drug or whatever, but you need more now to, yeah, you know, to have liftoff again. But I'll I'll now make a metaphor to neuroscience. So in that rate of acceleration, that's when your dopamine is flooded, and but then serotonin kind of takes over, and then you kind of have to be happy with where you are right now. No progress, but I'm just happy with with now. And so acceleration has gone to zero. But you're happy because uh, you've stayed positive.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's one of the hardest things for people to grasp is that you know, I, I think the best way to live is to be content, but ambitious. You know, or or, or, or rather content, but not satisfied. Like y'all, yeah, like I can look around and be very pleased with what i've done and really like the location that i'm in and everything about my life is something to be grateful for and express gratitude but then the rec- but i have to reconcile that with the the drive to achieve more and that has to be based on something that it can't be based on lack because you don't lack anything, right? At least not enough to be like, I need to get out there and grind. It's got to be based on something else, and that is, I think, the difference. If we want to like make an analogy, the difference between a relationship that's kind of based on like you, that initial like lust pool, like oh, I want to bang you, mm-hmm. and then you know when you like like each other and you're like hanging out and stuff, and you're like oh, okay, you know you're kind of cool. I could actually like spend time around you and stuff, stuff like that. Yeah,
0: no. it's 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 interesting how I I like uh, physics analogies. So I bet you there's a book there somewhere. So probably <laughs> the, the, the philosophy of physics. But um, look, Ed, where do you want people to to find you? EdLattimore.com. At, at clearly, that's where your courses are and your links to all your stuff. But also, you have these these great books. I would encourage people to check out uh, "Not Caring What Other People Think" is a superpower and sober letters to my drunken self, both excellent books. I loved reading them. They're really great. I hope people buy them. And what else should people, people should check out your youth, your YouTube channel.
1: Yeah. You know, the cool thing is if anyone is born later and wants to do this internet thing and they have the name Ed Lattimore, that's unfortunate because <laughs> I I'm everywhere that way. My Instagram is Ed Lattimore. My Twitter is ed Lattimore. my website is ed my facebook is ed Lattimore. my youtube page is ed Lattimore. like, like forever ever. like all ed Lattimore's
0: <laughs> in the future are are nobody's now
1: yeah i really i really you know i snagged up my name one of the first things i learned getting into this this thing was that get your name yeah because, and and i did because because while my name isn't particularly common uh i i could see someone grabbing it and then hold me hostage certainly at this point but now i have everything so
0: what well, what's your, what's your next thing? Like, uh, so you obviously you're learning Spanish, but what's the next career thing you think that you're going to next,
1: the next career thing is I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, right now, I'm working on the proposal for a book deal. And that I think is cause cause I'm always looking at like, how can I continue to get more reach and, and what that reach, you know, g- get more people and and also make more money to sustain my my dream and all that and, and I think that a book deal was the natural step for me right now with everything I'm doing because because I've done the self-publishing thing and, I'm, and I'm, I, I apparently I've had some, some strong success with that too based on the numbers so now I want to try and and push myself into a more mainstream light with a a book backed by a major house and we'll see how that goes. I I certainly think from what I understand, uh, I have a strong enough platform to at least sit at the table and, and have that conversation, you know, whether I'm able to come away with what I think I can get or what the agent thinks they can get is a a totally different. What do you want to write about? What's the topic? The topic right now. So the working title is the crucible effect. And that is, you know, how to change your perspective about, hard things until, you know, trying, but I'm still working on that subtitle, but the basic idea is, you know, I look at some of the things uh, that I went through in boxing and growing up and and sobriety and how each of those was spurned by a difficult event, or I had to work through a difficult one. And at the same time, I'm working through it. I've got to change my perspective on on it. You know, if, if, for example, if I'm looking at my upbringing, and the violence that I encountered, if, if I let that drag me down and become depressed, that's no good. And also, if I fall into that to survive, that's no good. So instead, I need to change my perspective and instead look at it as a thing to let to, to force me to, become better with negotiation. Like I'm at my heart, I'm a negotiator because as weird as it's going to sound, I'm not a fan of violence at all. Like I don't, I don't want to fight anybody. Certainly not. And then, you know, in that environment, it's a lot crazier. So the book is about changing your perspective on, on challenging things so that they become beneficial to you.
0: This is, this is, this is so important, particularly in this environment where so many people have to like shift careers, shift, Industries shift interests if necessary, and and then learn and then learn how to succeed in these new interests. I think this is such a, a, a an important and pivotal idea. So I, I I think it'll be it'll be very successful.
1: Yeah, and as I continue to polish polish it up, you know, I have a, a better pitch and and all is because uh, I still so I don't I haven't perfected my elevator pitch yet because I'm still in the in the designing phase. But but I've done you know I, I you you've done publishing. um through a house before so so my yeah. pr- the proposal done you know I've I've identified the similar books I've written the chapter outlines I've uh put together kind of my media profile wherever I exist in different places and so now I'm just going to you know the t- the two big things oh my my overview and bio you know kind of like why you should you know care about who I am and what I've done and now the next thing for me is is to write the, the three sample chapters is recommended, and also to to come up with a, a, a strong pit. So the next time someone goes, you know, it's in the back and go, okay, so it's like this, and blah blah, blah 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 blah, you know, pretty much what we did just now, but but even sharper.
0: Yeah, and I, look, I think also really important is not only the platform, and I do think you have probably the, the more than enough of the platform, but the fact that your platform comes from multiple sources. So like, there's a boxing component to your platform. There's the social media component to your platform. You know, there might be other components, you know, people who like you for social media, but other people who like the self help aspect, because those are two different areas. So I think it's like Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan has this audience from MMA, from sitcom, from stand up, right. you know, from Fear Factor. Or like for me, when I was building up my social media, I had like 20 years ago, I was a writer in the finance space. Then I was a writer in the tech or entrepreneur space. Then I was more like on the self-help side. Then I was a podcaster. So I was able to bring in all these different groups and that kind of together builds like one group, which is what you've done. And then it's an easier way for the word to get out when, when you have a book. Yeah.
1: So, right. That, That is exactly how I think about it. And, and the challenge, which is fun because I never really sat and dissected myself, this way, the challenge is putting together the the best way or rather presenting that in the best way possible which going, okay, look, I am this guy and and I've got like you said, you know, these people built up here. And I, I think that's kind of how I have it segmented out. Like here's everything from boxing. Here's everything from from uh sobriety. Here's everything from from learning slash leadership. For whatever reason, the, the the trader sector of of the world, I've been on a few podcasts related to trading and professional poker. And I think it's because I talk a lot about Uh, risk and making calculated decisions the right, the correct Mm. way. And also the stoicism aspect of keeping your emotions in check when things don't go right, even though the the odds said they should, but you're only playing the odds. You know, it's not a guarantee kind of deal. So there's there's a, a, a big enough audience there. And I think my job is just going to be to make sure they understand that and see that.
0: I think, I think that sounds great. I think, uh, 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 I'm, I'm a buyer. Let me, uh, I'll blurb the book. Let me blurb the book when it, when it comes out. <laughs> I'll
1: uh, absolutely. I'll keep you in mind for sure.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, look, uh, Ed, come on the podcast again. This was great. I know you've spent a lot of time. I really appreciate it and c- come on anytime and, uh, we'll just hang out and, and chat and just have the recorder on.
1: Awesome, man. I you, you are, you are even cooler in person, man. I'm a big fan of your books, by the way. I didn't want to, Oh, yeah. oh! Thank you. I appreciate Choose that. Yourself is really, uh, particularly the idea. You know, write down ten ways to make money. I thought that was a uh, every day. That that just light switch, man. Really, uh, like really changed my life. Yeah,
0: that for me too. So uh, that makes two of us. But uh, <laughs> uh, again, thanks so much. We have we share so many common interests. I could talk forever. So we'll we'll definitely do this again.
1: Absolutely, man. Thank you.
0: I appreciate you coming on.